Coming up on this week's episode of TechSnap, Krebs is hit with an amazing denial of service attack and then is kicked off of Akamai. We'll tell you about the record-breaking details. And then Firefox puts its foot down and picking NFS or Samba for your network. Then it's a great batch of your questions, our answers, a packed roundup, and much, much more on this week's episode of TechSnap. Hi, everyone, and welcome to TechSnap. This is episode 286 of Jupiter Broadcasting's weekly systems network and administration podcast. We stream this episode live on September 29th, 2016. This episode is brought to you by our three fine sponsors, DigitalOcean, Ting, and IX Systems. I'll tell you more about those great sponsors as this here show goes on. Oh, the Jupiter Broadcasting downloads, live streams, and all that business. Well, that's brought to you by Scale Engine. Go check that out at scaleengine.com. My name is Chris, and joining us every single week is our host, the admin, the tech, and the teacher, Mr. Alan Jude. Hello, Alan. Hello, Chris, everybody. Thanks for watching. Hello, Alan. Welcome back from your travels and whatnot. Yes. And uh, no con crud, you're really kind of getting that down. You haven't gotten sick for a while now in the travels. Uh, Hats off. I got sick in Tokyo. Did you? That's a hard mostly, one. Um, like, it was on the last day, but that's when I had to give a talk. <laughs> Luckily, I got saved by the Japanese VC3000. Is that like some sort of like vitamin pack or is that it, like... It's like these... Uh, 3,000 milligrams of vitamin C in a, in a lozenge. <laughs> oh, that sounds intense. So how was everything? Did everything well, go great? Everything went very well, yes. Good. Uh, my trip home was a bit longer than expected, but... Oh, really? Yes. So uh, I flew from Serbia to England, wow. which is like a two-hour flight, and got there at like 12.30 oh, uh, to find out that my flight home, which was supposed to be at 6 o'clock, had been delayed a couple of hours. Oh. It's like, okay. Uh and, you know, there's like, there's a flight earlier at three o'clock that we could rebook you on, but all the good seats are taken. And you, did you have your laptop with you so you could yes. get, okay. And, and I had lounge access. So I was like, you know what? I'll just wait a little bit longer. Uh, because so many people have rebooked, it means I'll probably get upgraded to business class anyway. Hmm. And I was like, that would be awesome. Right. Uh, so I'm like, okay, I'll just, you know, go to the lounge. So I, you know, finished getting across, you know, from Terminal 4 to Terminal 2, which is quite a trip at, at Heathrow. Yeah. And oh. then you go through security, and then you go under the runway and down a thousand miles away to the other part of the airport. Yeah. Did you walk that whole thing? <laughs> yeah. Okay. Uh, and then, uh, well, sorry, from Terminal 4 to Terminal 2, there's a bus. Okay. But once you go through security, walking to the actual gates is, is a long, long way. Uh, anyway. Uh, so I go and finally get there and, you know, I, I got my $10 meal voucher and spent that on chocolate bars. Good. Yeah. That's, that's the perfect fuel well, for that. Cause of stuff. I was going to have free food in the lounge. So what I wanted was a bunch of, uh, like British chocolate bars where we don't have this kind in Canada. So oh, I bought yeah. a bunch of those. The double decker there? Yeah. Nice. Don't have that in Canada. So yeah. I bought a bunch, uh, to bring home with me, uh, to spend my $10 meal voucher cause in the lounge they had free food all day. Right. Uh, and better than mostly what you could buy at the restaurants. And so here. were you able to eat and have connectivity? Were you able oh, to yes. like, oh, uh, that's nice. Better Wi-Fi, comfortable chair. Yeah. Uh, I had a shower. Oh. Uh, and I got to eat. That's kind of nice in a sense because then when you get home, you've checked a couple of things off your to-do list already. Yes. Uh, I wrote an entire 
disk emulation module thing for <laughs> Steam. <laughs> yeah, there you go. <laughs> now that's checked off the list. <laughs> uh, no, it wasn't 10 Canadian pesos. It was actually 10 British pounds, which is like $15 American. Oh, okay. Mm. Okay. Uh, although mm. it's always $10 in the local currency, which I think, well, I guess in a couple of places it would be slightly different, but like it would be $10 in Canada, be 10 US dollars in the US, and 10 pounds in, in Britain, and probably 10 euros in, in Europe. Uh, <laughs> it would have to be a lot more than that in Serbia because uh, a 10 is like a penny there. Mm. So, anyway. And so you probably walked away with a lot of great experiences and some stories for BSD well, now yes, and whatnot. Uh, yeah. So anyway, a, instead of landing at 8 p.m., I landed at 2 a.m. Uh, after the comedy of errors that happened on the uh, flight. Wow. Because, uh, so the airplane was broken, so they're like, all right, we'll just use the one that's coming. That's, that's going to be on the way from Toronto soon, and oh, it'll, man. you'll just be a couple hours late. It'll be fine. Okay. Then that plane was two hours late taking off. <laughs> so, uh, so they bumped us back two more hours. And then because of that, turned out that at this point, the pilots that they had to fly us, who had been set up, you know, were, had showed up at the airport ready to go at like 6 o'clock. Uh, well, at, at midnight, they... They extended. They they were past the limit of how many hours they can be awake and still fly. Oh, right. They hadn't had enough sleep. Yeah. So they had hmm. to get a different air crew. <laughs> and then you have to wait for the relief crew to come in. And, yeah, yeah. And I've then, been there. And then they had to clean the airplane because it had been used previously and mm-hmm. get it all sorted out. Mm-hmm. And then the new airplane was slightly different configuration than the other one, the original one. So that anybody even rose like. 20 to 24 had to have their seats changed around and so on and a bunch of other things. Yeah. I've, but uh, I got the upgraded business class. So I, I, I remember my last, actually just my, la- my last flight home uh, not too long ago, they had to bring in a relief crew and then the relief crew got, str- got stuck in L.A. traffic. And it, we almost didn't make the connecting flight in Oregon, and it was <laughs> it was very stressful. So the fact that you got to go take a shower, get some work done, cash in a voucher, that actually sounds that sounds kind of nice. And while you were off having a good old time, uh, the internet was freaking out about this record DDoS mm-hmm. on Krebs. And I, I bet a lot of our audience is kind of fami- familiar with maybe like the bold, highlighted big elements of the story, but I bet there's a lot of details in this son of a gun that are are pretty fascinating. You want to start there? Yeah, Uh, and because it ended up being uh, the topic of the keynote at the end of the conference I was at, I kind of thought it'd be a good story to talk about. Yeah, no kidding. I'd been thinking about it a lot since the last week. So yes, uh, on uh, last Tuesday evening, KrebsOnSecurity.com was the target of an extremely large and unusual distributed analysis service attack designed to knock the site offline. Uh, the attack did not succeed thanks to the hard work of the engineers at Akamai Prolexic, uh, which is a denial of service mitigation company, um, the company that protects Krebs' site uh, from such digital sieges. Uh, but according to Akamai, it was nearly double the size of the largest attack they'd seen previously and uh, was among some of the biggest attacks that the Internet had ever seen. So this is, I mean, Akamai is... That's, an, a, that's a huge statement for them to say this is the largest attack they've ever seen. Well, it's double the size of the largest one they've ever dealt with before. That, that is huge, right? That seems historical. Uh, yes. now, so, some other people have seen big ones about this size, but this was right up there with the, the biggest ones ever. Uh, they say the attack began around 8 p.m. on September 20th. Uh, the initial reports were that it was approximately 665 gigabits per second. Mm. Uh, additional analysis of the traffic suggests the number was actually closer to about 620. Um, but in any case, this is many orders of magnitude uh, more traffic than is typically needed to lock, knock most sites offline. You can, you can knock most sites offline with one or two gigabits probably. 
if the, if they require that, depending yeah. on the site. Yeah. Um, Martin McKay, uh, who's Akamai's senior uh, security advocate, said the largest attack the company had uh, previously clocked was uh, earlier this year at 363 gigabits. But he said that there was a, a major difference between last night's denial of service attack and the previous attack uh, record holder. The 363 gigabit attack um, is thought to have been generated by a botnet compromising uh, systems using well-known techniques which allow them to amplify a relatively small attack into a larger one. Mm-hmm. So almost all of the previous large-scale denial-of-service attacks that we've seen were using reflection and amplification attacks. So uh, what that is is, you know, uh, because of the way UDP works... Uh, you're not actually making a connection. You're just sending a packet and hoping the person gets it. So it means if you set your IP address wrong in that packet, it looks like it came from someone else. This doesn't work in TCP because you send the first packet and the other side gets it and sends back a reply that you have to reply to to actually open the connection. And obviously, if you fake your IP address, you don't get the the second stage of the three-way handshake. But in UDP, it's not checked? Uh, because it makes it faster because you're just saying, hey, give me this information, get it back. So if somebody's getting slammed by a bunch of UDP packets and they look at the source address, you're saying that that really just can't be trusted? Uh, entirely. A lot of times it can't be. So, But that's, that that's just a regular UDP yeah. attack. Yeah. In a reflection attack, what you do is you go to the DNS server. and uh, So I send a fake packet to a DNS server saying, you know, what's the IP address of Google? Uh, but I set the from address to your IP address. Mm-hmm. So now the DNS server is replying to you. Right, right. So now instead of uh, my IP address showing up as attacking you, it's now this DNS server that looks like it's attacking you. So that's reflection. But then there's amplification. If the packet I send to the DNS server is very small, it just says, you know, what's the IP address of this uh, domain name? But the answer is really big because I've set up that domain name to have like 50 IP addresses to make a really big packet. Now... I send a small packet to the DNS server, and it sends a much bigger one to you. And this DNS server probably has incredible connectivity, I would imagine, yeah. depending on the or, DNS and server. And I'm using every DNS server in the world, right? That every every one that I can get at. Yeah. Um, and so, because, you know, like Google has the DNS servers 8.8.8.8 and 8.8.4.4, but they're anycast. They're actually made up of hundreds of DNS servers all over the globe. So I can just pound on all of them, and uh, that will require, that will mean all of those will now be sending bigger packets to you so it allows me to amplify the attack right I, I only have to send i don't need that much internet connection on my end i can just send a bunch of small packets and cause these amplifiers to send bigger packets That's brilliant the same thing was happening with ntp where the public ntp servers you could say hey um give me a list of all the people that are getting their time from you and the ntp server would oblige and send you a giant list and so i'd send you a small request and get and it would you know attack somebody with this very large attack. Uh, it's pretty interesting. Yeah, it's, um, it's, it's, really, so, it's really taking advantage of the architecture of the underlying protocols in a way that's extremely yeah. clever and leveraging other people's infrastructure. Well, in particular, just it's, it's things that we didn't think of when we designed these protocols. Yes, and right. They're protocols that we can't really change now. Yeah, they're, <laughs> they're kind of so in. <laughs> for DNS, we've mitigated this mostly by doing uh, request rate limiting where each DNS server will only uh, reply to like, you know, 50 requests a second or something from any one IP address. Sure. So that, you know, basically it limits it so it can't deny a service stack you. And NTP servers have all been locked down, so they won't answer the questions that you don't need answered this way. Or we'll send a small response saying, hey, 
if you want the answer to that, you're going to have to switch to TCP and prove you're really you. Um, and so anyway, all the previous really large attacks were using these uh, reflection and amplification techniques. And that's how they managed to get so big because, you know, their botnet wasn't big enough. But by having the whole botnet using all these reflectors and amplifiers, they were able to make a bigger attack. Sure. Uh, so, yeah, basically your bot sends spoof packets of a few bytes and the reflector then sends a response that's, you know, two or three or 10 or 15 times bigger. And that makes your attack bigger. And uh, the interesting there is that not only does that attack obviously harm the victim who's getting all these packets, but it really hurts the reflectors as well. Um, you know, it was really interesting to see this when the, uh, they were targeting the NTP stuff built into like uh, switches and routers and, and servers. Like in the, manage- the IPMI interface or the like ILO or DRAC interface built into a Dell server hmm. and using that to attack. So it's like hmm. on, in the actual operating system, you don't even see anything. Yeah. It's happening. You're actually talking to yeah. a, an embedded Linux running in a different chip yes, right. in, inside the server that you don't even know right. about necessarily. That, and, and that's so that. brilliant because a lot of times uh, the systems that have that type of hardware are also in a data center with great connectivity and great CPU or great, if, if nothing else, uh, a large pipe out to the rest of the internet. And so the, mm-hmm. that's why it's such a great machine type of hardware to go after because that's usually what comes along with a machine that has a drag or, or something like that. Yes. Uh, so thanks to the hard work of many sysadmins and, and uh, advocates of this particular thing, I think the uh, Shadow Server and a couple other places were basically uh, tracking these down and and sending the abuse emails to get these fixed up. Uh, now most DNS and NTP servers are much more locked down and the reflection tags are less common, although there are still lots of other protocols that are vulnerable to amplification like this and aren't easy to fix. Uh, so, you know, we definitely haven't seen the end of reflection, but we've probably stemmed the tide a bit there. What was interesting about this attack on Krebs is it didn't use those. Oh. It was a vanilla straight-up flood. Really? Yeah. And, yeah. and that and they didn't – so uh, what, why, that's a, why I'm surprised by that is because of the volume the attack was. It seems yeah. like it would have to come like from either – Before that, nobody thought that they could get that big without using reflection. Yeah, because you would need the no speed and you would need the connectivity of those systems. Um mm-hmm. And, or or you would just need an insane number of machines, right? I mean, right. That's, you gotta, that's the two ways to do it, right? Yeah. So uh, in contrast, the huge assault this week on Krebs' site appears to have been launched almost exclusively by a very large botnet of hacked devices. Oh. According to Akamai, none of the attack methods employed on Tuesday night's attack on Krebs relied on amplification or reflection. Oh. Rather, many were garbage web attack uh, methods that require a legitimate connection between the attacking host and the target, including just a regular get requests or post floods or just sin attacks. So all the, the really classic kind that normally the, they wouldn't be that effective because they couldn't be big enough. Mm-hmm. But in this case, they had so many of these hacked devices that they were able to make this huge attack. Jeez, I wonder if this is going to be more of a problem as more mm-hmm. just little crap devices get internet connections. Yes. Um, there are some indications that this attack was launched with the help of a botnet that enslaved a large number of hacked so-called Internet of Things devices. Yeah, there you go. Including routers, IP cameras, and a digital video recorders, DVRs. Oh, uh, yeah. Previously, about, what was it, like 150 brands of uh, CCTV DVRs uh, for security systems were all the same Chinese firmware 
that had a whole bunch of bugs in it that weren't going to be fixed. And it's been pointed out to me kind of recently that a lot of these uh, DVRs are connected to the internet because they're managed by a security company that, that that's like a, it's part of the alarm. Well, there's those DVRs, but the, this one also seems to involve the regular cable DVRs, like the ones you record TV shows what? On, on your TV. Oh, what? Right? No. They, they have access yeah. to stuff. And, and there so a lot like of them have Almost network. all of those now have internet connections yes. so you can watch Netflix on them. Or so you can download TV guide information over the internet right. connection or do your video on demand or whatever. Yeah. But, oh my But mostly to become a set-top box. So, so imagine you have this box that you've got an ethernet connection into for your TV so you can pull, stream Netflix without using up your wireless, right? Or whatever. And those being part of the attack. Wow. Or even, you know, think about it, the uh, smart TVs. Especially the older generations of them. Like, like my parents have a, an early yep, Samsung we've Smart TV, about this. and I've got the Ethernet cable plugged directly into it so that, you know, that it doesn't stutter when they're streaming stuff. We've got a Vizio here that has some whole platform on it that even sometimes occasionally opens up its own Wi-Fi access point. It's <laughs> unbelievable. Mm-hmm. Uh, they say that uh, a lot of these devices are exposed to the Internet and protected with weak or hard-coded passwords. Yeah. Uh, so Krebs says that he'll address some of the challenges of minimizing the threat of these large-scale denial of service attacks in a future post. Uh, but for now, it says it seems like uh, we can expect much uh, uh, expect such monster attacks as uh, to soon become the norm. Uh, he says many readers have been uh, asking whether this attack was in retaliation for the recent series of takedowns on the denial of service for higher uh, service VDOS that uh, we talked about uh, last week and the week before. Mm-hmm. Uh, which coincided with the arrest of two young men uh, named in his original report as the founders of the service. Krebs says, I can't say for sure, but it seems likely to be related. Uh, most of the post-request attack that were done against his site uh, as part of the 650 gigabit attack included the string free Applejack, hmm. uh, a reference to the nickname of one of the owners of the VDOS service. Okay. Hmm. 620 gigabits. Yep. <laughs> That's a big number. Yeah, I wonder when we'll hit te- a terabit. I wonder when that'll... Uh, in the next story. Yo. <laughs> okay, there you go. There's a tease, everybody. Boy, that yeah. one came up a little faster than I expected, Alan. <laughs> yeah, I know. Um, so the opening keynote for EuroBSDCon uh, was the next decade of BSD. And, you know, one of the things is, you know, we're going to have to get ready in the next 10 years for terabit network cards. Yeah. You know, we've, we're, we're, we, we have some 100 gigabit cards already, but uh-huh. they're not really normal yet. Uh, yeah. Uh, but soon everything will have a terabit. Uh, and it's like, yeah, it turns out we're going to need it just to deal with denial of service attack. Yeah, seriously, what a, a kind of unfortunate reality that is. Um, all right, well, so before we get to that story, let's take a moment right here and thank our first sponsor, and that's the great folks at Ting. And why I say great? Well, because it's mobile that makes sense, and I like how they're challenging the entire mobile industry, and you can take part in that by becoming a Ting customer. They just charge for what you use, your minutes, your messages, your megabytes. They add them all up. That's what you pay. It's six dollars for the line, and your usage on top of that. I'm gonna be I'm gonna be straight with you guys. If you're a, if you got a small business, or really even uh, more than ten lines, up to a, a lot more than that, Ting can be an unbelievable way to deliver actual, usable, fairly flexible overall for business actual for for specifically for businesses wireless service and. 
here's why a couple of reasons I say that. First of all, it's really easy to move the Sims around. So if you move phones around, it's simple to just pop the Sims out and pop them in. You can set up all of the management stuff on their control panel, which works really well. You can name the devices individually in their control panel. So you could set up flags in case somebody's going over on their messages or their data or whatever you might want to worry about. They have really nice abilities to simply turn off a line when you're done with it. It's just nine bucks to get a SIM card to activate another device. And because they have CDMA or GSM networks, it's also very nice for data connectivity. Now, just a couple of – just the last couple of days, I was somewhere where my CDMA connectivity was very, very poor. But they, have, they had fantastic GSM connectivity. And I have a MiFi that does CDMA and then I have a separate MiFi that does GSM. And I pull whichever – either one I want up. And typically that would be – that would be a ludicrous thing to say. That would be what? What would that be? 60 bucks a month for each one of those things? And because I'm only paying $6 a month, and then just when I use it, it gives me the flexibility to stay connected regardless of what network area I am in. And I like that because it's, it's, it's doable for someone at my scale, and it, the, the, the economy of scale just grows if you just keep adding people onto that. It continues to be extremely reasonable because it's just $6 a line with no contract, no other termination fee, and you only pay for what you use. So get started by going to techsnap.ting.com. That'll give you a $25 service credit, or if you get a device, it'll take $25 off a device if you're a cord cutter. Also, go to techsnap.ting.com and they'll go check out their blog. They've been doing some really nice cord cutting posts on their blog, um, and, and they're taking another look at Sling TV. I have, I don't know, maybe maybe about six months now, and I'm six months into Sling TV, and I, I run it on my NVIDIA Shield, and I have just a data connection and I am able to watch live news, the Food Network, the History Channel, um, a couple other uh, – lots of sports stuff that I don't watch. But like when the debates were going on, Sling was one of my go-tos. And I just fire it right up on my television using my Shield TV. And they have a uh, write-up about Sling TV. If you're curious, see if it might be a way for you to cut the cord but still watch live news and sports events. Start by going to techsnap.ting.com. Go check out the Ting service and also check out their blog – Maybe get a few cord-cutting tips. TechSnap.ting.com. Okay, I'll admit, you've definitely got my interest peaked on this next story. So it sounds like this is part two. We're, to, we're sort of picking Basically, back up. Yes. Okay. Uh, so, yes, I titled this one, The Shot Heard Round the World. Yeah. <laughs> so and this is a follow-up post. Uh, Krebs uh, is discussing the uh, democratization of censorship, uh, which sounds good but is not. Hmm. Uh, in particular, his point is that you no longer need to be a nation state to censor someone. Uh, you just need to have a big enough botnet. In particular, uh, these people were not very pleased with Krebs and were able to take his site offline. Yes. Uh, <laughs> yes. Yes. And he's got, you know what? He's made some hay from it. I'll give him that. Like when this kind of stuff happens to Krebs, it's a perfect thing for him to write about. So, <laughs> yeah. But that's not very useful if his website isn't online. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> that's very true. So, what, what does he mean by the democratization of censorship? Because that sounds like Basically, anybody can censor Anybody can censor people. <laughs> that doesn't sound good. <laughs> exactly. Okay. He says, allow me to explain how I arrived at this unsettling conclusion. As many of you know, my site was taken offline for the better part of a week. This outage uh, came in the wake of the historically large distributed denial of service attack, which hurled so much junk traffic at KrebsOnSecurity.com that the uh, denial of service uh, mitigation provider uh, 
Akamai Prolexic chose to unmoor my site from its protective harbor. Mm, so basically, whoa. Akamai kicked him off their service. Wow. Uh, he <laughs> yeah. says, let me be clear. I do not fault Akamai for their decision. I was a pro bono customer from the start, and Akamai and its sister company, Prolexic, oh, okay. uh, have stood by me uh, through countless attacks over the last four years. Oh, okay. It just so happens that this last siege was nearly twice the size of the large, uh, next largest attack that they had ever seen. Uh, once it became evident that the assault was uh, beginning to cause problems for the company's paying customers, they explained that the choice uh, to let my site go was a business decision, pure and simple. Uh, so while Krebs understands their position there, this poses a big problem. The bad guys now know the magic number, 650 megabits, at which point Denial of Service Mitigation Services will tell you to piss off. <laughs> that you're on your own. Sorry, we can't protect you. And that, you know, kind of <laughs> breaks the internet in this way, right? <laughs> it's like, so you can't even pay to be immune to this anymore. They will just be like, no. You know, normally the, the, you, you have your ISP, and you have your site there, right. you get denial of service attack, and the site, your ISP shuts you down and saying, sorry, you're affecting our other customers, uh, we can't do this. And then you're like, okay, I'm going to go to Akamai and have them protect me from this. But now the attack is so big that even Akamai is turning you away. Uh, he says, nevertheless, Akamai rather abruptly informed me that I had until 6 p.m. that very same day, roughly two hours later, to make arrangements t- uh, for migrating off their network. His main Jeez. concern, or Krebs's main concern at the time, was making sure his current hosting provider wasn't going to bear the brunt of the attack. Uh, when the shields fell. Mm-hmm. To ensure this uh, absolutely would not happen, uh, Krebs asked Akamai to redirect his site to 127.001, effectively relegating all traffic destined for Krebs on security into a giant black hole. Uh, and he goes on to describe that process. But it says, uh, Today, I am happy to report the site is back up, this time under Project Shield, huh. a free program run by Google to protect uh, journalists from online censorship. And uh, make no mistake, denial of service attack, particularly those uh, the size of the assault that hit my sites this week, are uniquely effective weapons for stomping on free speech for yeah. reasons I'll explore. In I, I do think um, that's what DDoS attacks are probably the most used for is a, <clears throat> a lazy, pathetic way to uh, stifle the speech of the site. It's so it's, – it's, they feel so juvenile and uh, somebody who's been the source – or not the source – the destination, target. the target, yeah, of DDoS attacks. It just always feels so petty. Mm-hmm. Like, really, that's the best you could do? Okay. You don't, you don't have anything better to do? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, but this raises another question. What happens when the bad guys find the magic number to perform a large enough attack to disrupt Google? You know? Well, it, is that... It's almost like the challenge has been issued to all of the botnets of the world. Is that possible? Yes, I think so. Yeah, especially I guess if you could, if you could uh, if you could make the software crash or you could confuse the software. You, well, not just that, but even Google only has so much network capacity. Yeah, yeah, they have right. a lot, though. <laughs> yeah, sure, they have a lot, but do they actually have more than some other people? Well, I, 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 my, my understanding, my understanding about Google is one of the most uh, aggressive things they did very early on is they bought up a lot of fiber connections, so they own the connections between their data centers. Um, yeah, but you know, yeah, those fibers uh, yeah. have a speed limit. Yeah, and routers can get overloaded, and mm-hmm. when you take when you start, and we've also seen like we've seen how if you take out an area of the Google network, it can actually impact other areas of the Google network too. So it, you never really know where there could be a vulnerability, where you, a soft spot, where you poke that, and it's 
all of a sudden a house of cards. But uh, this, how can Google afford to do something like this? That's what makes me think they have so well, much infrastructure they can afford yes. to do this. But, you know, at some point, the traffic is coming from other ISPs. And, you know, sometimes that costs money. <laughs> yeah. Now, I'm, I'm, yeah, well, you know, for PR reasons and so on, Google's willing to spend quite a bit of money to, to you know, to, to keep hosting these journalists because it's part of their, their mission or whatever. But, you know, there is some magic number at which Google will yield, I think. And uh, I'm hoping we don't find out what that is. Uh, because then at, at that point, what are we going to do? Mm-hmm. What options are left? Right? Yeah, uh, I don't so know. This was actually the topic of the closing keynote at EuroBSDCon last weekend. Fascinating. Uh, sadly, there's no video recording of that because it didn't work out. Uh, but, um, you know, uh, it raised some pretty scary questions, actually. Uh, and I, I will talk about that a little bit more as okay. we keep going here. Okay. But, uh, Krebs says, uh, why do I speak of denial of service attacks as a form of censorship? Quite simply because the economics of mitigating large-scale denial of service attacks do not bode well for protecting individual users, say nothing of independent journalists like Krebs. Um, In an interview with the Boston Globe, the uh, Akamai executives said the attack, if sustained, likely uh, would have cost the company millions of dollars. In the hours and days following the site going offline, I spoke with multiple DDoS mitigation firms. One offered to host Krebs on security for two weeks at no charge, but after that, they said the same kind of protection that Krebs had under Akamai would cost between one hundred and fifty and two hundred thousand dollars per year. Oh, that's that's not sustainable. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then Krebs goes on to talk about some of the other issues with that, uh, and uh, you know, just musing about starting a charity and, and Kickstarter and so on to try to raise money to, to basically set up something like this that is protected and you know at those kind of rates, uh, and then offer the hosting to a bunch of different uh, people who are basically endangered in that same way, uh, and try to to deal with it. Uh, but you know that's just amusing at this point. Uh, then he also points to a recent post by Bruce Schneier saying earlier this month, a noted cryptologist and security blogger Bruce Schneier penned an unusually alarmist column titled, Someone is Learning How to Take Down the Internet. Um, the link is in yeah, the show notes. Yeah, I remember that. Um, citing unnamed sources, Schneier warned that there was strong evidence indicating that uh, nation-state actors were actively and aggressively probing the internet for weak spots that could allow them to bring the entire web to a virtual standstill. Uh, someone is extensively testing the core defensive capabilities of the companies that provide critical internet services. Uh, who would do this? It doesn't seem like something an activist, criminal, or researcher would do. Um, profiling core infrastructure is common practice in espionage and intelligence gathering. It's not normal for companies to do that. He says, uh, furthermore, the size and scale of these probes, and especially their persistence, points to state actors. It feels like a nation's military cyber command trying to calibrate its weaponry in the case of cyber war. It reminds me of the U.S. Cold War program of flying high-altitude planes over the Soviet Union to force their air defense systems to turn on so that their capabilities could be mapped. Uh, So he says, uh, what exactly was it that generated the uh, 650 gigabit attack against Krebs' site? Was it a space-based weapon of mass destruction built by a and tested by a rogue nation state or an arch villain like Spectre from the Jane Bond series of novels. Uh, <laughs> if only the enemy were that black and white. Uh, it says, no, 
As I reported in the last blog post before my site was unplugged, the enemy in this case was far less sexy. Uh, there is every indication that the attack was launched with the help of a botnet that uh, has enslaved a large number of hacked so-called Internet of Things devices, mainly routers, IP cameras, CCTV systems, and digital video recorders that are exposed to the Internet and protected with weak or hard-coded passwords. Most of these devices are available for sale at retail stores uh, for less than $100, or in the case of the routers and some DVRs, are actually shipped by ISPs to their customers. Right? Like, a lot of people's DVR comes with their cable subscription. Uh, and a lot of routers now do as well. And so when users don't even have a choice of which one they're using, uh, this, it, it really raises the question, well, who's responsible for the security of that router? Right? Yeah, I guess so. Yeah. Uh, and and is there some sort of, is there some sort of, like, expiration date that they should put on there, like you do food when you, that you buy at the grocery store? No updates no longer after this date. <laughs> Well, the biggest problem is that most of these don't get any updates ever. Yeah. Right. Or users have no idea they need to be updated, too. Mm-hmm. Uh, some readers on Twitter have asked why the attackers would have burned uh, so many compromised systems with such an overwhelming force against Krebs's little site. Right? They probably didn't need 650 gigabits to knock Krebs's site offline. Mm-hmm. After all of the reasons, the attackers showed their hand in this assault, exposing the internet addresses of a huge number of compromised devices that might otherwise be used for actual money-making cybercriminal activities, such as hosting malware or relaying spam. Surely network providers have, uh, would take that list of hacked devices and begin blocking them from launching attacks going forward. Uh, it's like, while we'd like to think that the hacked devices will be secured after this because we've figured out where they all are, the reality is that they probably won't be. Uh, you know, Akamai probably didn't record the every single IP address of all the people that were attacking them. At some point, they just had to route the traffic into the black hole and not look at it. Um, you know, um, even if there was a firmware update to fix these devices that were being hacked, uh, how often do people update the firmware on their IP cameras or their DVR? Yeah. Or even know that there is such a thing or how to do it? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, in some cases, the cable companies might be able to help push uh, yeah. firmwares to routers yeah. and DVRs. Yeah, maybe they, they would... do like behind the scenes if you're lucky. Right. But I, uh, to routers, I almost kind of doubt it because the mm-hmm. the risk and the support cost of knocking people offline seems like yep. it'd be too prohibitive. We wouldn't do exactly. it. Uh, and the cable companies do have some incentive to do this now because those attacks are using up their bandwidth and costing yes. them money. Yes. Whereas. Uh, you know, outside of that, a lot of times they don't have any incentive. When the attacks were smaller, when the amount coming from each device was small enough before, um, there wasn't really any incentive for them to try to fix it. Uh, and the biggest thing is that, you know, a lot of the uh, Krebs in the article talks about, you know, BCP38 and ISPs trying to block spoofed packets. And it's like, while that is great, and we kind of want to do that, you know, there are a couple problems with it, but we want to do it. Uh, the bigger problem is that these guys weren't using. Uh, reflection or, or spoofing at all. It was just a straight-up attack. And so even if we got all that done, it wouldn't help in this case. Uh, and then the other thing is that in the end, even if ISPs notified their customers that they were part of this attack, right? Uh, if everybody who had one of these compromised devices got a letter in the mail from their ISP saying, you know, you're, you, something in your house was used, it's like, well, everybody's behind NAT, right? So it's like, how do you tell which of your Internet of Things device was using the attack? You know, if, if you're just a regular person and you don't know how to use a protocol analyzer, 
Or even if you do, if the attack's not happening right now, then how do you know if it was your DVR or your smart TV yeah. or your thermostat or your refrigerator that was actually being used to attack Krebs? Yeah. Or worse, if it's your router, then you're running your protocol analyzer inside your network and you don't see anything. Because yeah. it was all happening on the outside. But the bigger problem here is even if the ISPs could send a letter to the user, the user's not going to know what to do. And there's really no way to tell which device it was inside the network. And so the chances of this getting fixed very easily are pretty low. Uh, yeah. And if, if we thought the 650 gigabits was enough to make almost any site kneel to the attacker, OVH.net, the big uh, French ISP, uh, like server hosting company with huge amounts of bandwidth, reports a botnet of almost 150,000 CCTV systems, cameras, and DVR units, each with a network capacity somewhere between 1 and 30 megabits of upload, Oh, uh, started attacking their network and hit a peak of 1.1 terabits per second, or 1,100 gigabits per second. There it is. Uh, and they estimated the capacity of that botnet to be over 1.5 terabytes. But the whole botnet wasn't being used at that and time. And you're telling me this is made up of mostly embedded equipment. Yeah. And so, you and know... Just, everybody's home internet connection has got a couple of megabits of upload yeah, now. Yeah, and, and... And if you just take 150,000... You know, if, if, you know, some of these devices, there are millions of them. And they've got, they've got decent enough ARM processors and decent enough network connections in them. Some of them are probably even gigabit connected now, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> now, now, most people, you know, it's, it's mostly rated by... Uh, rate, limited by people's upstream connections, which are usually, you know, even if you have files with like a gigabit of download, you usually only have maybe 20 or 30 megabits yeah. of upload. Uh, just enough people with one uh, megabit of upload and all of a sudden, crazy. Hmm. Yeah, how are you going to ever, yeah, geez. This seems like a huge problem that's just going to get worse. Yeah, and uh, the problem is we would have had to solve this three years ago. Yeah. By when these devices were created. So what I want to do is I want to put so everything if, on the even network. Even if every new device that uh, was released after today wasn't vulnerable to anything somehow, which just isn't possible, uh, we would still have this problem going forward for the next how many years. But yeah, 1.5 terabits per second. That's hmm. a lot. Yeah, it is. Uh, Holy smokes. So yeah, Krebs says, I don't know what it will take to wake the larger internet community uh, out of its slumber to address this growing threat to free speech and e-commerce. My guess is it will take an attack that endangers human lives, shuts down critical national infrastructure, or disrupts national elections. Um, Mm -hmm. The sad truth uh, these days is that it's a lot easier to censor the digital media on the internet than it is to censor the printed books and newspapers in the physical world. On the internet, anyone with an axe to grind and a willingness to learn a bit about technology can become an instant self-appointed global censor. It's kind of interesting because the internet was democratizing stuff by allowing anybody to put information out there without having to own a newspaper. Uh, But now it turns out it might be easier to censor those people than it is to censor an actual newspaper if you're not a government. Yeah. Uh, But, you know, Krebs is... kind of ideas of what it will take to actually uh, cause people to wake up to try to solve this are where the scary part from the, the closing keynote of your OBSD con, uh, which is, you know, when something like this happens, when there's an attack that shuts down some critical national infrastructure or disrupts uh, an election or something is the governments are going to get involved. Right. And then you see this idea of, you know, uh, some government of a country in Europe decides that they're going to regulate the internet in and out of their country. 
And eventually we get to this point where the internet is actually broken up on national boundaries. So each country has its own internet. Um, and then they're interconnected, but only, you know, people with a license or whatever are allowed to, to have connections between the countries. So then um, almost all the traffic that people actually have uh, going international would have to go over something like Facebook or Google. And really, if you look at the internet now, it is almost that way, right? If you're using Facebook, you're actually talking to a server likely in your country or nearby, uh, and then the message is relayed across Facebook's network to get to the person in the other country. And uh, same with CDNs, right? That's yeah. the whole point of a CDN. It's what Scale Engine does. We have these servers in all these different countries so that when you're downloading this episode of, of TechSnap, you download it from a server in your country rather than all the way across the internet. Uh, but, you know, if the governments get involved and decide to limit who can actually uh, send messages across the global internet and then only allow inside their country where they can actually prosecute people, then the internet changes a lot. Uh, and, you know, we keep kind of sliding towards this where everybody's, you know, nobody runs their own email anymore. Everybody uses, you know, Google, Gmail and so on, right? And we're just getting closer and closer to this and it at some point, somebody in the government is going to figure out that it looks like a solution to this problem. I don't know that it actually is, but mm, that's interesting. You know, I I, I was uh, but doing... really the, the big point of this was denial of service attacks are getting so big now, yeah, that it's going to put small ISPs out of business because Ugh. everybody's going to have to host a site with somebody like Akamai that's big enough to absorb these attacks. And you know. How how much worse is the internet now that we have so many fewer ISPs compared to back in the day with dial-up where there was lots of little like mom-and-pop ISPs and, and everything was better? Uh, we've seen what happens when we concentrate the, the power of our internet connections down to, you know, five ISPs in the U.S., like, you know, Comcast, Verizon, AT&T, and so on. Uh, if we end up doing that with the entire internet, or if you want to host something on the internet, you have to talk to one of these five companies because uh, anyone smaller will just get taken out by a denial of service attack. So the, it seems like uh, the the real issue is below the fact that we have all the Internet of Things connected, we have these cable boxes connected, these DVRs connected. The real issue is, and I, this is something you and I have talked about before, is we didn't solve the updates and patching problem before we decided to connect everything online, and we just we just put the cart before the horse and. This is one of the ways we're going to pay for it, and it's going to fundamentally reshape the architecture of the internet. And, and when I say architecture, I mean the companies behind the internet um, in a way that I don't think anybody would have thought of when we thought of, hey, what's going to be one of the outcomes of having all of these devices to the internet, connect to the internet, not patched? It wouldn't have said – I wouldn't have been the person to stand up and say, well, uh, small independent ISPs are going to collapse. That right. wouldn't have been the outcome that I would have expected, and this is just one of what might be many. Mm-hmm. And it, because really, the other problem is, you know, people want their Internet of Things device to cost thirty dollars. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. And it's like, well, you're not going to get very much software for that. Much. And of course, everybody wants to be able to put their magic on top of it that they can monetize. So they've got to somehow ship you a thirty dollar project or product that they've also done R and D for their magic layer, um, and it's it's never going to scale. Oh, this is this is why it really is. It really comes down to properly. You know, I, 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 I just there are so many stories so, right now about people. The story getting, we just went back to the the Western Digital NAS. Yeah, I was, was just laughable 
it's like who thought this stuff up? Yeah, you know, you mentioned who the, wrote this code. You mentioned the elections. Uh, the home of oh, the uh, the uh, guy that runs the uh, Department of Homeland Security was testifying yesterday to Congress, and he said that there's now been 17 states that have asked for federal support to boost up their websites to prepare their websites for cyber attacks. And what strikes me about it is if you really just patched your crap and really got everything up to date that way, that way, that would be. That would be such a huge leap forward in security for everyone. And if there was just a way we could roll out these uh, these uh, updates to these Internet of Things devices, it would be, again, the same thing. These DDoS attacks would be reduced, all of this stuff. Because like you said in the first story, we now have mitigation for reflection attacks that we're starting to put in place. But we don't have a solution when there's just hundreds of thousands of crappy devices connected. And so well, now that's because the other big problem out. is, you know, there aren't updates for some of these devices because – you know, the company set up, sold 100,000 of them, yeah. and then folded up, right? Yeah. The, they're, they're, or or, or ended an end of product. life. You know, like yeah. even Google has now done this, where they've ended life of an Internet of Things product. And it's like, okay, well, I have that set up in my home. Well, you should uh, unplug it and throw it away. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. That, that's what Google wants you to do and mm. replace it with a new one. The right. Problem is people, it's like, well, I paid for it and it still works, so I want to use it. It's That's, like, yeah, but you're actually breaking the entire internet. And I think there is, I think consumers have a different perception of devices you put in the home that become part of your home. I think they expect like much longer lifespan mm-hmm. for that kind of stuff. Any mm-hmm. other thoughts on the story? Uh, but, you know, it's, it's really problematic because it comes down to we can't solve the problem because we can't even tell people which of the devices in their home is actually the problem. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that is a key part. Yeah. Yeah, and especially for average consumers. Maybe our audience, <laughs> not as big of a challenge. They could figure it out. Regular people that are buying these things at Lowe's and Walmart and Amazon. Well, you know, we just people don't even fathom the possibility that their TV is being used to attack people. <laughs> You know, most people think the TV's only attacking you by putting <laughs> Donald Trump in your face. <laughs> I thought you were going to say pharmaceutical commercial. That's good, too. All right. Well, um, uh, I don't watch regular broadcast TV, so I don't even think about the fact of the amount of, number of times I – if you watch regular TV with all the pharmaceutical ads, yeah. the number of times you hear anal leakage. is bad, man. It's real it's bad. Like, what? Yeah. Yeah, it, when you watch the new, the nightly news here in the states, it's literally all pharmaceutical commercials. Some some nights, it's so bad. <laughs> That's why here on the TechSnap program, we try to pick sponsors that actually match our audience, like DigitalOcean. Head over to DigitalOcean.com and use our promo code SnapOcean. That's all one word, lowercase, and it gives you a ten dollar credit. Over at DigitalOcean. Now, DigitalOcean is a simple cloud hosting platform that's really easy to get a server spun up on their totally badass infrastructure. For $5 a month, you can get a nice rig, or you can pay hourly and really take advantage of our SnapOcean $10 promo. And they've got data centers in New York, San Francisco, Singapore, Amsterdam, London, Toronto, Germany, India. Let's be honest. The only place you want to deploy those is Toronto. And they have the best interface. They really do have the best interface for managing something like this, and they match it with a great documented API that has tons of good open source code already written. Check it out at DigitalOcean.com. They now have high memory availability. But one of the things that we talk about from time to time is their super cool badass block storage. Highly available storage. You never run out of space. You can add up to 16 terabytes of SSD-based block storage. Now you might say to me, Chris, that sounds 
pretty cool. I love myself some block storage. I love myself some SSD-backed block well, storage of that. The big thing there is just so you, you get the amount that you need right now, and then when it gets when your ZFS pool gets near full, boom, you just add some more. Yeah. You just yeah. dynamically resize. You don't actually have to do anything. You're just like, hey, I need some more. It's two great it. technologies coming together, and DigitalOcean has a great tutorial written by Chip Marshall over on their site that tells you how to configure an encrypted ZFS pool with a DigitalOcean block storage. You attach it. You can increase the size. It's a great write-up it's from beginning to setting up the partitioning all the way to the end. That might just be something you could use our promo code to just try out, play around with some really great technology, and then set it up in production. And don't forget about their private networking where this could get even gr- – just if you have a back-end database or a back-end storage system and you want to communicate with front-end servers, private networking is perfect for that. doesn't count against transfer, anything mm-hmm. like that. DigitalOcean.com and use our promo code SNAPOcean. That's one word. You type it in there, you apply it to your account, and you'll get a $10 credit at DigitalOcean.com and SNAPOcean. Is the promo code you use? Big thank you to DigitalOcean for sponsoring the TechSnap program. Yeah, I you I uh, I kind of like the idea of playing with that the block storage more and more, Alan, for different little projects I have. I have an MB server running up there right now, and that could be kind of perfect for that. Well, the nice thing is that you basically size it, and and don't mm-hmm. pay for more space than yeah. you need. Yeah. But add space as you need it. Yeah, and you can also add RAM or you know there's, there's mm-hmm. other nice things you can turn up as you need it too. So, well, that's the other thing. It's because DigitalOcean allows you to resize your droplet relatively quickly as long as you haven't changed the size of the storage of the actual SSD storage that they include as part of the VM. Right. So if you keep that small, mm-hmm. you can resize up and resize down. So, like, you, you know, make what it says oftentimes if you don't need a lot of storage for the OS, yeah. make it the smallest one. Start with yep. the $5 one. That's what I did. And immediately turn it off and resize it up to the size with the amount of RAM you need. That is literally uh, my plan for my future droplets. up and down as, yeah. as you need with yeah. basically a reboot. I'll have a nice tight OS drive, which will save me money, and then I'll just, yep, exactly, scale up with the block. That's my plan for my future droplets. Uh, yeah. DigitalOcean.com. Uh, it basically, it's also one thing DigitalOcean didn't have before, yeah. which was, uh, you know, I, I want to put my own cloud or next cloud or and be able to grow it up in the in cloud, and it's like, well, I need more storage than the you know fifty gigabytes they were going to give me. Yeah, and now they also have really high availability, like high, high, high memory, like two hundred twenty-four gigabytes. Like you can yeah. go crazy with the RAM. So you combine that, it's nuts. The, the Snap Ocean promo code will get you. Started. Yeah, I have, I have to take it open with them asking about uh, possibly getting high CPU without high memory. Oh, uh, for, for some stuff I need to do. I'd be curious to know how that goes. Mm-hmm. I would. So check it out. They also uh, they also probably a little harder for them to do. Something we don't mention a lot, but if you're going to use it in your corporation or with your project, this might be nice. They have uh, team support as well. Yes, uh, we use that at Scale Engine. Do you? Because I needed to be able to have other people from our team be able to spin up droplets and so on, but not access our credit card stuff and so yes, on. Yes, exactly. So it works great. DigitalOcean.com. And they've got it now so that it's easy to do. Uh, so the people on our team have their own DigitalOcean droplet account that they pay for for their own stuff. Mm-hmm. And they just click a button. You know, when they're logged in, they just click and they switch to their scale engine profile or whatever. And then they have access to our stuff. So they can, you know, they don't have to log out and log in with a different password or manage a whole bunch of different accounts. They can put it all together in the one account and just flip between the different teams. That is so nice. Uh, it's great. Yeah. Yeah, that is really super nice. And it's nice for collaboration because then you're all speaking the same vernacular. You all know the same things. It's the same dashboard. It's, it, it makes it really productive. So it sounds like the group over at Firefox, the guys there, then the gals there, they're getting serious. They're getting mean. They're putting their foot down. Time to follow some rules. I don't know. What's going on, Alan? 
so Firefox is preparing to block, uh, to remove one of the certificate authorities from the root store. It does sound like putting the foot down. Yeah. Uh, so we talked about this option a couple of times, uh, but, you know, no, no CA had been slapped with this uh, yet. Mm. But uh, the organization that develops Firefox, Mozilla, has uh, recommended the browser block the digital credentials issued by the China-based certificate authority for 12 months after discovering that it cut corners and undermined the entire TLS sub, uh, ecosystem that encrypts and authenticates websites. Oh, so the practices of uh, WoSign uh, basically were woefully inadequate uh, and possibly broke uh, security of the entire internet. Uh, so they say, yeah, uh, the browser trusted WoSign authority intentionally backdated certificates that it issued over the past nine months to avoid the industry mandated ban on the use of the SHA-1 hashing algorithm. If you remember when we talked about this a couple years ago, um, the CA browser forum came up with a rule saying that after uh, January of 2016, uh, no issuing or no issuing any certificates that have an expiration date after January of 2016 uh, that use this old hashing algorithm, you have to issue ones with the new one. Mm-hmm. Um, they said the SHA-1 based signatures were barred at the beginning of the year because the industry consensus are that they are unacceptably susceptible to cryptographic collision attacks that can create counterfeit uh, credentials. Basically, someone could spoof the certificate uh, by brute forcing until they found a colliding uh, SHA-1 hash. Uh, to satisfy customers who experience difficulty retiring the old hashing function, WoSign continued to use it anyway and concealed its use by dating certificates prior to the first of the year. So they faked the not-before-date on the certificates so that Firefox's automatic block of any certificate that didn't meet the rules wouldn't kick in, uh, allowing their customers to continue to use the old certificates. Uh, the, the new certificates with the not allowed anymore hashing mm. algorithm. Okay. Uh, uh, Mozilla also accused Wosign of uh, improperly concealing its acquisition of the Israeli certificate authority Startcom, which uh, was used to issue at least one of these improperly issued certificates. So, you know, one of the rules of the CAB forum is that, you know, uh, each certificate authority is separate, and if they have dealings with each other, that has to be, you know... Um, made public or whatever, right? They have to tell, it's like, hey, we're buying this other certificate authority. We're actually the same company now. Yeah. But they didn't. Um, so the, uh, Mozilla says here, taking into account all the issues listed above, Mozilla's certificate authority team has lost confidence in the ability of WoSign and Startcom to faithfully and competently discharge the functions of a certificate authority. Therefore, we propose that starting on a date to be determined in the near future, Mozilla products will no longer trust newly issued certificates issued by either of these two C, uh, CA brands. Uh, so their plan there is that existing certificates that have already been issued by these companies will continue to work to avoid impacting regular customers who paid for a certificate and it would just go away and break things. That would be bad. Uh, but Mozilla will not trust any newly issued certificates. Uh, so for at least the 12 months after a date to be determined quite soon, uh, these companies will basically be out of business. They they won't be able to sell yeah. certificates. Or, yeah. Well, they'll still be able to sell certificates, but they won't work in Firefox. Yeah, which, and I'm guessing that other browsers will probably follow suit. Uh, and if that happens, then yep. 
nobody's going to want to buy a certificate from these people anymore, right? Who would want to even a Firefox? I mean, that's just... Yeah, exactly. Uh, Wolstein's practices come under scrutiny after an IT administrator at the University of Central Florida used the service to obtain a certificate for med.ucf.edu. He soon discovered that he was mistakenly gotten a certificate for www.ucf.edu. So basically, the process to verify that you actually control the domain was not very strict. Uh, in fact, the one that uh, Vosine came up with is uh, if you can answer our query on whatever port number you pick, we'll trust you. So by being able to listen on a random high port number, uh, he was able to get this certificate. Um, to verify the error wasn't isolated, uh, he, the admin then uh, used his control over a subdomain of GitHub, his username.github.com, and username.github.io to generate certificates for github.com, github.io, and www.github.io. Uh, when the admin finally succeeded in alerting Wosign of the uh, improperly issued G- GitHub certificates, yeah. Wosign still didn't catch the improperly issued uh, University of Central Florida certificates and allowed it to remain valid for more than a year. So when the admin tried to contact Wosign, he basically got nowhere, and he had to basically contact Google and get Google to to contact the CA. Uh, and Google has some weight. Yes. Even, so, and while they, they fixed the ones that they got told about, they didn't then go and look and make sure nobody else had already done this and find the uh. other ones that the admin had previously done. <laughs> uh, which is <laughs> one of the things you're supposed to do. Uh, for reasons that aren't clear, Mozilla's final report doesn't actually make explicit mention of the certificates uh, involved in the GitHub and UCF domains. Uh, that are documented here in August. So, you know, Mozilla wasn't even holding that particular incident against them, necessarily. Uh, so the Mozilla report highlights a whole bunch of issues. I've picked a couple of interesting ones here. Uh, Wosign has an issue-first, validate-later process where it's acceptable to detect uh, misissued certificates during validation the next working day and then revoke them at that point, uh, which in Mozilla's report is issue N. They've num- uh, lettered all the issues because there was too many to number them. <laughs> um, so apparently Wosign would just issue certificates for whatever you asked for. And then the next day when the people came into the office to work, they would double check the certificates were should have been issued. And if they weren't, they would just cancel them. The problem is how much damage could someone have done in the, you know, eight hours or more that the, the office was closed? I could get a certificate for Google and do all kinds of stuff before you cancel <laughs> the certificate. <laughs> Hmm. Uh, if the experience of their website ownership validation mechanism, that thing with the high port number, is anything to go by, it seems doubtful that Wosign keeps appropriately detailed and unalterable logs of their issue, issuances. So when they give out certificates. Uh, the level of understanding of the certificate system by their engineers and the level of quality control and testing exercised over changes to their system leaves a great deal to be desired. It does not seem that they are appropriate cultural practices to develop secure and robust software. Yikes. Issue V and issue L. Uh, they also mentioned that um, all certificate authorities are supposed to maintain a document describing their process. It turns out that Wosign would often change their process and only update the documentation when they were reminded that, hey, your documentation doesn't match what you're actually doing by their auditors and so on. Uh also, they have here, for uh, reasons which still remain unclear, Wosign appeared determined to hide the fact that it had purchased Startcom, actively misleading Mozilla and the public about the situation. Hmm. 
Suspicious. Yes. Also, uh, Wosine's auditors, Ernst & Young Hong Kong, uh, have failed to detect multiple issues that they should have detected with the certificate authority. Uh, so the audits they were having done were not good enough either. Although that in particular might have been a problem with the auditor. Uh, although the fact that Wosine gets to pick who their auditor is might be a problem as well. Mm-hmm. Anyway, uh, so Google has a report that they issued, which is a Google Doc here I've linked. Uh, and they also have a wiki page where they kind of break down each of the different issues and have the details about them. And then Wosine has their response, uh, which mostly uh, seems their their way to try to solve this is that they pushed all of their certificates that they issued during 2015 and the first half of 2016 through to Google's uh, certificate transparency servers, uh, which basically means every certificate they issue, they'll post to this Google server and, uh, and one of their own. And uh, it's an unalterable log showing every certificate they issued and it's basically a way to see what they're issuing and make sure that it's not mm. for domains that they're not supposed to be issuing certificates for and so on. Uh, but that's probably too little too late at this point. <laughs> uh, but the full response from Wosign is also linked as a PDF in the show notes. Well, nice breakdown, Alan. Thank you. Mm-hmm. That was... Jeez. Yeah. So <laughs> you know, uh, maybe mess. this... Uh, if, if Especially after just buying uh, StartCon... Uh, if it basically means this puts Startcom out of business because they won't be able to issue certificates anymore, uh, that will uh, a I'm sure the people that owned Startcom and sold it will be kind of disenfranchised to feel their to yeah. all their hard work get destroyed. Mm-hmm. Uh, but also, you know, this might get other certificate authorities to finally snap into shape uh, when you know one of their competitors actually gets the hammer dropped on their head. Yeah. You know, look at them, you know, and I, I would bet if I was going to put money on it, which I wouldn't, if I was going to put stake on it, I would bet a stake that Google will follow suit. Yep. Yeah. All right. Well, Mr. Well, you know, they already threatened to do it to uh, Symantec. So. Yeah, exactly. Symantec, of all things. All right. Well, I want to tell everybody about iX Systems, iXSystems.com slash TechSnap. That's where you go to land to support this show and learn more about the incredible iX Systems built by those industry-leading Intel processors. iXSystems.com slash TechSnap. Contact them for your next open-source workload build. Dig around on their site. Take a look-see. And then when you get there, also t- turn over to their blog for a bit. They have some interesting stuff about uh, compression and deduplication. If you if you want to uh, read this, I like the title. It's Data and Compression and Deduplication Demystified. And this is a nice one written over on the IX blog for any of us who want to do this kind of stuff. I think you can check out the IX blog and find all kinds of cool stuff like events are off, often posted over there as well. And then dig around their site and learn more about the offers and the services. I think um, – I remember it was – Oh, geez. I don't remember the year, but we were building a terminal server rack of systems, and we had all of these different bids out. And if if I had known back then a company like iX Systems was around, I think we would have fundamentally had a compl- just such a, a better experience because the hardware vendor we eventually went with, they did okay on the support side, but they, they ended up having an entire generation of bad controllers that we had to take systems out of production to update. That happens. It happens. Mm-hmm. But we were also bid on those same servers by an entire bad generation of tape backup drives. This is back in the day. And 
I, I was it left us with this constant juggling act of bringing systems down to fix them and having this real, really, really poor experience where they were pointing the fingers at each other for it's the hardware vendor, it's the software vendor. It's, and we wasted so much time from the initial quoting of the project, getting it into production, and then resolving all of the issues. I could only imagine how much smoother that would have been with a company like IX, who's been around since before the dot-com boom. They know how to do this, and they've really dialed in their hardware partnerships, their community partnerships, their investment in their staffing. Uh, I mean, and I'm, not, I'm not just saying this. That's why uh, crazy guys like uh, Alan Jude over there who actually care about these things go with IX. Yeah. Uh, well, one of the bigger things is more that um, – now I forgot what I was going to say. IX systems, you know, I think, yeah. I think the bigger thing it really is is that uh, we're not just oh, uh, fans. We're not just uh, they don't just sponsor us. Uh, they're well, like one of the few sponsors that we ask to come on the show because we right. are customers ourselves. Yeah, but um, you know, when when you go to get a quote, is where you'll notice the difference. Yes, you know, if you try to ask most places, they're like, okay, uh, so here's a pamphlet of stuff, and uh, you know, when do you want to set up a call so we can talk to you for an hour or whatever? It's like. You can call IX and talk to them, and, and oftentimes it's the best way to, to get it done. But at the same time, it's like if you just give them the details, it's like I need a server that does this, and it, and it's like you get a quote back in a couple hours. And it's like, oh, okay. Uh, signed, all right, order, done. <laughs> you know, uh, I've, I've heard of companies uh, that were just so used to the old process that of going through it with like somebody else that they were just confused when they got a quote that was of something ready to order from IX. And they're like, what, what do we do with this? It's like, well, you order it. It's ready to go. <laughs> um, you know, it's just the painlessness. Uh, but the big, the reason I use IX over the way I used to do it, where I'd like build the servers myself, is just it takes so much of the headache away. They know more than I do about the stuff. And they'll make sure that, you know, it's be like, are you sure you want to do it that way? There's, you know, you know about this, right? <laughs> yeah. Uh, but yeah. They're, they're also not constantly trying to upsell me on anything, right? Yes, it's very true. like, here's the recommendation, but... It's your server. You can you do what you, what you want. want. Yep, yep, yep. That's been my experience too, and that's really nice because mm-hmm. you know that they're 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 doing it because they want you to ultimately have a really great build, so that way down the road you're inclined to buy another IX system. It's not just about one system for them; it's about establishing a long term relationship. Well, and yes, it's also because you know uh, they're not a huge company, but they're big enough. But they mm-hmm. they actually care. You know, they they've been through the whole dot com thing. Uh, they understand that you know. Just having the most sales or whatever isn't the thing. They want a company that they can be proud of. You know, it's an employee-owned company, and they, you know, they actually care about what you think about them, not just how many dollars you pay them. And that makes a big difference. Yeah, yeah, really. IXSystems.com/slash/techsnap, and a big thank you to IX for sponsoring the TechSnap program. Also, make sure you check out MeetBSD. Uh, they're hosting MeetBSD at Berkeley in California, mm-hmm. uh, November 11th and 12th. Uh, if you are going, you should register now. Uh, there's a discounted registration rate until the end of September. Or actually, I think it's only till the 30th. Uh, so you need to register, like, yes, the end of September. You have until the end of September to register. So if you're watching the live stream, you should do that, like, now. now. Yeah. And if you're watching the download, it's like you have literally only hours left to register. <laughs> Go now! <laughs> you can still register after, but it'll cost more money, and yeah. that would be silly. Register yeah. now. It'd still be worth it, though. It really would be. Yes, definitely. Yeah. Uh, uh, myself and uh, Chris Moore will both be there, uh, and we hope to do some. I've heard from some folks that are going, so yes, uh, I would love. I, to- I convinced at least two people uh, at the conference in Europe to come over for it. I feel like if I could park Lady Jupiter at the facilities there in the parking lot, I would go. 
But I was uh, otherwise. So probably. Yeah, yeah. I know. And otherwise, somebody sent you a, a link to nearby campgrounds and so on. Yeah, I think I still think it was like forty-eight minutes away or something like that. So. No, most of them were. Was like, it closer? Oh, I'll take another look. Miles or something. Well, was, then maybe there was like four within eighteen miles. I would love. The, I would love an excuse to go down there. So you never yeah. know. Check out that link on Twitter again. Okay. Yeah, from Ben, right? It was it was Ben, right? Yeah. Or was it? Yeah, I think so. All right, so why don't we, before we jump out of the news segment, let's give a little pluggy plug here for episode one sixty one of the BSC Now program, the BSD Bromance. <laughs> what is that? What is that? <laughs> uh, it's we did an interview about Bro, which is an intrusion oh. detection system. For, <laughs> okay, I was, like, I was like, what are they doing with that title? And now it makes sense. Now it makes sense. The Bromance. Well, yes, we might, interviewed uh, Michael Shirk about Bro. The uh, the traffic recording system. BSD Now, episode 161. You can go get the HD version, and then you get more Jude in your face because this is about the halfway point. When we wrap up, don't be out of Jude. Don't be out of Jude. Go get more Jude and Chris. It's just a different Chris. And the BSD Now program, you can find it over at uh, jupiterbroadcasting.com or bsdnow.tv. But with the news all done, that means it's time for the TechSnap Feedback. Thanks for sending your emails to techsnap at jupiterbroadcasting.com or popping that contact link at the top of the JB website. Or maybe you started a thread in our subreddit at techsnap.reddit.com. Jens writes in with our first one about backups. He says, hey, guys, I love all the shows. I listen to the all RSS feed, and I was interested in your opinion on backup software. I've already looked at Bacula and BarrowS and Dervish as well as Rsync. What are other solutions that I maybe could look at? And what are some of the ones you're using? My environment is very diverse. Two free NAS, of which one is being moved to an offsite, and another uh, to a central server. If also, uh, he also has, he wants to be able to control the backups across these guys. He has the one Linux netbook he needs to back up, a one Linux PC he needs to back up, a one Win 7 netbook, a one Win 7 10 notebook, and a Windows 10 PC which might do dual boot later. And hopefully, if he gets them to run maybe a 32-bit Linux distro on there or a BSD distro, he'd run that on the notebook. So he wants to know something that will run across a pretty diverse, like free NAS potentially, notebooks running uh, BSD, Linux, and Windows. Um, and he says, greetings from cloudy Germany. Mm-hmm. Um, Bacula definitely has... Quite a few advantages for that. Because that was my first. He says he's work. tried it, and I'm wondering. Well, he says he looked at it. I don't yeah. know if he tried it. It really it can look a little daunting to set up, but it's really not that difficult. No, I've done it a few times, and I'm mm-hmm. come on. If I can do it, you guys. I can haven't do it. done it that recently, but uh, I know people have, and and it's it's probably the easiest one. Yeah, because it has the cross-platform hey. file director for all of the uh, or file daemon for Linux, Windows, Mac. Yes, and, and, and it does BSD. the bare metal restore, which right. is very nice. Now, um, mm, that's kind of a shame. R-Sync isn't really a backup, although yeah, I was about to mention with and so on. I was about to mention backup PC because really for backup PC to work, all you need is a Samba share, and if you can share out the files that are important to you or let it connect over SSH and R-Sync, it can back them up. And backup PC gives you a web interface to restore them. And for me, I've always been the kind of person as I, I don't I don't really want the OS. I don't even want my applications. What I really want is the data, and when I have to reload a system, I'll just reload it with the latest OS, the latest applications, the latest drivers, et cetera, et cetera, and I'll remove my data back onto the rig, import into the applications, good to go. And so mm-hmm. Backup PC was always a great application for me because it, was, it focused on data, it focused on deduplication, and it was really kind of elegant. But it hasn't been updated officially. The last release was on January 11th, 
2015, which is right. Yeah. So I I think both of us would say, and I hate that we always answer it this way, but legitimately we both independently, like many many years before I knew this man Alan Jude, I was deploying Bacula because mm-hmm. it was just a great. And you know I and I did I was deploying Bacula after I had experience with a lot of other enterprise backup systems and, and everything from Tivoli. To uh, of course backup exec, NT backup, but all of like the the different variations on those system tools that were uh, huge enterprise costs that my clients bought or banks bought. At the end of the day, the when it was when it was on me to deploy a backup system, when it was like this is this is this guy's choice, and if we lose data, it's his fault. I chose Bacula. I would I would sort of double down on the Bacula recommendation. I know yeah, we mentioned so it a lot, but it's you normally kind of shy away from Bacula when you're talking about one or two or three machines. Yeah, but with you having uh, was it seven and and he's got multiple different OSs, yeah. then it, it, at that point it's probably worth Bacula because um, you know the other option really is is yeah Samba Share uh, either you know have the Linux machines connect to the Samba Share on the on the free NAS and push with rsync. And then take your snapshots on our sync and replicate them to the other, or take your snapshots on the free NAS and replicate it to the other free NAS. Yeah. Um, but you know, uh, pushing from Windows is a bit more difficult because you have to run a script or something. So you can have the Windows machines share, and then the free NAS can mount them and pull with our sync. But uh, it's just not as nice as Bacula. No. And here's the thing: the Bacula client running on a Windows box. Is it, it's capable of pulling from the shadow volume copy. So if you have a file that's locked or something like that, the, having a Bacula service running on that Windows box gives it access to volume shadow copies and things that when mm-hmm. rsync is connecting remotely is, is is just simply not exposed to it via Windows. Yep. And and so if you want if you want a truly integrated solution, you, you kind of want something that can use volume shadow copy. So look at that yep. since you do have plenty of Windows boxes. But and that's sh- the other thing. Uh, if you have your snapshots named correctly on your FreeNAS, you can actually access the backups. Uh, Oh, the yeah. snapshots of your backups as if they were volume shadow copies right. they actually show up in the Windows interface that way. Yeah. Uh, which can make it very handy to get individual files back when you don't want to do a full restore. Because, you know, oftentimes, you know, the thing you really want to restore from backup is the homework I was just working on or the document I was writing or that, you know, whatever I was working on. It's like one or two files, not necessarily I need to restore the entire computer because it died. Although often it does. Uh, the approach I've taken for that is that my computer has very little storage in it. It's got like 200 and, or 240 gig SSDs mirrored. But I don't use most of that space to set aside for recording BSD Now live. Um, and then all of the storage is actually the, my E drive, which is a Samba share off my FreeNAS. Uh, and I just, all my applications are even installed there. And I share a lot of data between my two desktops, my work desktop and my home desktop because uh, they're in the same building. Um, I think a lot of people are yes. doing that because they just have laptops now too. And yeah. laptops traditionally, that's about the size you'd have in a laptop. And so you have, yeah, and, and why not? Why not uh, Why not make your front-end machine something that's semi-disposable and then invest long-term in a back-end storage solution? So best of luck to you. Uh, Jorian writes in uh, with a little salty question. He says, hello, Alan and Chris. So I've, I heard last week on TechSnap, that Alan was currently evaluating Salt as a possible replacement for Puppet. I've been using Salt at home, while, and it's been great so far in my testing. However, the problem I have is that it requires a Salt minion client. 
it seems to me like installing the Salt Minion client should be the job for Salt. So what is the possible best practice for this? Thanks for all the great show content and sysadmin advice, Jay. So basically, Jay's saying here, I like Salt except for the fact that I have to install the Salt agent everywhere before I can use Salt. Um, you know, I currently we're using Puppet, and we have to do the same thing. Uh, but how you know, do you, you know, how do you deploy system. it to a new system? Say IX. You so know, the, like right. So we install the OS, and then we install Puppet, and then we over on the Puppet Master, we say yes, that's one of my servers, and then it does everything else for us. You install the OS, or the vendor installs the OS. It depends. Usually, I do it because I do it really special my way. <laughs> of course, you do. <laughs> um, but you know, uh, other a lot of people have it set up with like a Pixie Boot type system where you just put the machine in the install VLAN, boot it up, and it gets your common image splatted on and the, it. And, and is the install items. VLAN like the default VLAN? Like so, uh, it just... not usually because we wouldn't want to accidentally boot something and overwrite the OS. Oh, if you're oh, in the oh, install oh. VLAN and you boot, you're Pixie booting and you're getting your disk. How do you get it. a new system that you've never touched before in the install VLAN? Uh, usually by just configuring the switch to put the port it's in. Okay. Oh, yeah, sure. So you know which port it's plugged into in the data center. Um, it depends, you know, it, it, where it's going. I mean, obviously, this seems like uh, this seems so. This seems like a job for your Ansible, default install if, image, right? But uh, Ansible, which is an alternative salt and puppet, is more of the all you really require is having like SSH and Python on the remote server. But, uh, but then again, yeah. it's like isn't installing Python the job of the management system? <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, you, you could go there, down there. There is apparently salt-ssh, which you could probably use to at least bootstrap installing the salt minion on the server. Just uh, what I was going to mention. Yep, yep. yep. Uh, the chat room brought that one up. I'm not that familiar with salt. Uh, we looked at it, although some of the stuff we do really, really lends itself towards the uh, exported resources of basically uh, the way we do a bunch of, like our Nagios monitoring at Scale Engine is each machine uh, has a puppet template and it basically writes its config file for Nagios and stores that in the database. So each server says, okay, I have these services. Here's my name. Here's my IP. I have these services and writes out this config file for Nagios and stores it in our Puppet database. Hmm. Then our three Nagios servers go and say, hey, give me everybody's Nagios config. And they download them all, spot them on their disk, and Nagios starts up. And new servers get added automatically. Old servers get removed automatically. And it works very nicely. I like it. Uh, We'd have to just find a different way to do that, to use salt. Uh, so here's what I have linked in the show notes to kind of uh, help out is uh, over on uh, docs.saltstack.com, there is several different video guides on how to do this, but also just documentation, and it, it, including agentless quick start with salt SSH configuration and getting it all deployed. So we'll have a – you can click on this in the show notes. You Not only will you, get, will you get video guides about it, but there's also just fantastic written documentation if, you, if you're more of a – you know, well, actually, you're watching this, so you probably are more of a visual. So you'll probably enjoy a visual person. You'll probably enjoy those videos that we have linked up to there. Hmm. You know, we get a lot of questions about Chef and Puppet and Ansible. Um, in fact, there's a couple that didn't quite make it into this week's episode uh, all along this topic. It's really, mm-hmm. really one of the things that we're hearing a lot about. Uh, speaking of that, um, <laughs> Carlo writes in about Freenas. This is a long one. He says, hi, Alan, Chris, everyone. Thanks for reading this. I know you guys keep on saying how good Freenas is. But you never really, really say how great it is. I took the plunge over the weekend and installed FreeNAS on my homemade Windows file server. It's got an i7 with 16 gigs of RAM in it. I decided I would play around with FreeNAS 10 beta because, you know, why not? (laughs) Before I go further, I have to mention that I have never used FreeNAS or FreeBSD and have only used Linux remotely to manage my web server. 
Anyway, after having a non-issue of apparent uh, the non-issue of apparent freeze while installing, setting it up was a total breeze. I started with two. I think I call them data sets comprising of four three terabyte drives and four four terabyte disks, both in a RAID Z1. Okay, so that would be two VDEVs rather than data sets. Uh-huh. Data sets are the file systems you create on top of the pool. This is how you configured your pool. Although it's unclear whether he created two pools or two VDEVs in one pool. Right, I agree. And he says, and now he's got some questions. Um, and he's got, he's got four of them. And I'll just ask you one and you can answer. What is an ARC demand data? Uh, so ARC demand data, I'm guessing he's uh, reading the stats output of the like uh, ZFS stats. Yeah. So ARC demand data is data that a program is asking for out of the ARC. So it's how much data uh, some uh, a program is actually asking for. And the ARC and then, is... Just so, so ARC is adaptive replacement cache. It's the way that ZFS uh, does caching. Uh, most other programs do uh, a thing called um, LRU, so least recently used. So they monitor, um, so they have a big cache of files, and every time you use a file, that file goes to the top of the list uh, and till the cache is full. And then when you use a new file, it has to make room for this new file. So it deletes the files from the bottom of the list until there's enough room to put a new thing at the top. Okay. Right? So the file that you used the longest ago gets removed from the cache uh, so that uh, one you just used can go in the top. Um, the problem with this is if you have to do certain operations like, say, your backup where you read every single file on the server, uh, your cache becomes useless because all it contains is the last couple of files you read. Sure, yeah. So the ARC uh, re- breaks the cache up into four chunks. Uh, really two, but there's four lists. Uh, first, it has uh, your most recently used, which is basically the same as the LRU, uh, except for it's sorted by the most recently used file instead of the deleting the most uh, least recently used file. Um, but it also has an MFU, the most frequently used files. So by keeping these two lists and trying to balance the amount of cache base between them, it means if you do something like a backup that reads every single file, that will basically blow out your uh, most uh, recently used cache, but your most frequently used will be there. The files that you're using very all the time are still going to stay in the cache, and uh, you're not going to lose performance on them uh, like you did on uh, if you had just an LRU. Right. The other thing is it has ghost lists. So for both of the MRU and the MFU, it has a list of the files that have been in the cache a couple of times but keep falling out. And so it basically blacklists them and won't put them in the cache. That way, um, it gives other files a chance to actually have a turn in the cache and find out that maybe they would actually do better there. Fascinating. Mm-hmm. That is really interesting. That's very smart, too, isn't it? Yeah, okay. Yes. All right. Well, so, uh, so, that's what, so uh, for ARC demand data, uh, so there are multiple stats. There's uh, ARC demand data hits and misses, but then there's ARC demand metadata, which is... Uh, information about the files rather than the files themselves. Okay. Uh, and then the opposite of that is ARC prefetch data. So basically, when you ask uh, ZFS to read a file, it reads what you ask, but it probably also rounds it up and reads a bit more, assuming that if you've read the first bit of a file, you're probably going to want to read the next bit after. Hmm. So uh, the chunk of that that you didn't ask for but ZFS read anyway, that's the ARC prefetch data. Oh, oh okay. Uh, and by looking at those hit and miss ratios, you can see whether the read ahead actually did you any good or not. And that's what that stat means. So basically, oh, okay. 
arc demand data is the data you actually ask for, whereas arc prefetch data is the data ZFS thinks you're going to want soon and read up uh, into the cache anyway. That actually makes a lot of sense. Okay, so here's number two. Uh, my machine only has 16 gigabytes of RAM. When I start copying files to the free NAS, the RAM jumps up to almost full, and then it just stays there. Is is that a problem? So I don't know how you're measuring that, but it depends. Um, so ZFS, uh, if you're looking at the stats, uh, the ARC, which is this cache we talked about, does default to using up most of your RAM. But it's actually, yeah. I think he's talking about copying from his workstation to the FreeNAS server, and I think he might be talking about memory usage. Well, actually, I'm not sure what he's talking about the memory usage. Yeah. So in particular, mostly likely what this is, is the cache. Because free yeah, okay. RAM is wasted RAM. Right. Uh, so ZFS <laughs> will, will keep as much of the files you're using recently in RAM, because if you were using them recently, you're probably going to use them again. And if you can pull them out of RAM instead of off the disk, it'll be much faster. Now, if your system needs the RAM for something else, it will give it back. Uh, but, you know, it's a free NAS, so you probably, hopefully, aren't going to be doing much else with it. Uh, so, yes, having it use up most of your RAM is a good thing. Yeah. And uh, uh, you and can fit more in it. Uh, yeah, putting more in it will make it faster. Yeah. But it's not required. Yeah, he says, I can already hear Alan tell me, yeah, more RAM is a good thing. He says, I also have four SSDs, two 60 gigabyte, and two 256 256 gigabyte SSDs. Uh, what would could they best be used for? I need to set up a few VMs to run occasionally, so should I just maybe put them on the SSDs? My current setup easily saturates my network. Yeah, uh, because of the small amount of RAM you have and the fact that your, you know, your bulk usage isn't going to need a cache like an L2 arc, uh, what you can do is take those two 256 gig SSDs, make it a new pool as a mirror, and put your VMs on it. Uh, it won't fit very many VMs, but it'll make them faster. Um, you know, you could try to do the read and write caches in ZFS, but because the amount of RAM you have is small enough, uh, the entries just saying, oh, that block's over on this SSD would take up so much of the RAM that you're, you would actually uh, get less cache efficiency. So, yes, uh, if you want to use them, uh, just make a separate pool and just put certain things on. Nice. Yeah, you know, I think, Carlo, this probably applies to a lot of people. And here's this last question, and I don't know if I follow his logic. He says, I have issues transferring files that start with a period. Is that just an issue with the beta of FreeNAS? I don't know. Uh, maybe that's something to do with Samba? Uh, that I was my first the beta thought. of FreeNAS. Uh, you know, yeah. in general, I would recommend staying on their stable branch. To, yeah, uh, I think I think 10. they definitely would at this point. I mean, if you're yeah, going like, to be crazy, well, at least wait till the RC. It's really more of an alpha. <laughs> yeah, it, it only works in Chrome right now. They're talking. They're they're totally redoing some major stuff. Huge improvements long term. Um, but Carlo, aka JDE, I would I would. Uh, I am a I am a rolling distribution kind of guy, and I would not be rolling FreeBSD ten or I'm sorry, FreeNAS ten just yet. I would say yeah, uh, that's it's the operating system is stable underneath. It's sure, the, the whole web interface thing is is all new, and that's what I think maybe it's is worth underscoring. Time. So when they get to and this is now probably Alan won't agree with this, but this is how I roll when they get around RC level because they're based on a stable known FreeBSD target. Uh, honestly, when FreeNAS 10 gets around a RC level, I'm probably going to start deploying it. And I will I, – I just because – because the way the OS is separated from the data set, if later on I have to reload the entire OS, I just reconnect it back to the data set. And uh, it's not really a big deal. But right. I, would, I would 
I would avoid running the beta at this stage because you may run into issues that are just temporary and you're always going to have that question in the back of your mind. Is this because it's a beta? Am I doing something wrong? Do I just not know the configuration? You can eliminate that kind of nebulous uncertainty by just running the stable release. And then not only do you have a certainty there about being on the stable version, but you have way more documentation and way more community support available to you. So there you go. Although he sent a nice screenshot. I hadn't actually seen this much of uh, the new FreeNAS. Oh, you, oh I fancy. know, right? It is. Yeah, if Although, that's... yes, they, they, them exposing the ARC demand data as a graph of just things that don't make sense, uh, it's probably <laughs> led to quite a bit of confusion. You know, you could probably send them some feedback. You could probably, uh, you might, uh, they yeah. might like your, you're right, here. So I'm showing it now there on the stream. Uh, that is, yeah. I, I like but this. Basically, you see that the ARC demand data spikes match up exactly with your network card. And basically, it's when data is being pulled out of the air. Yeah. Uh, if your network was much higher and or if your dark demand didn't match up, then or, uh, sorry, because the arc demand data and the network graph match up, it means most of the answers to your requests are coming directly from RAM and are super fast. Oh, that's what that means. So that's actually that the fact that these that the network I/O. Uh, graph and the arc graph almost match up line for line is an indication that when the network request is coming in, it's being answered by arc. Yeah, it's a hit. Well, you have to look at the colors for whether it's a hit or a miss, but it looks like that's mostly metadata. So it looks like most of the requests that are in the graph right there are, um, they used colors a little too close together, like orange and light orange. <laughs> See, I think um, they could use your feedback. You probably could. Um, <laughs> You're good at but, this. But uh, basically, it looks right. like it's just yeah. stuff like browsing through files or yeah. something. Metadata, uh, like open up yeah. directories, pulling down information yep, about it, stuff, stuff like yep. that. Things. Now, I'm, you know what? Props, too, for sending in a screenshot. That's great. Yes. Thanks, Carlo. Yeah, and it does look good, the new, the new UI. I was asking about Arc Demand data. I'd never heard anyone ask about that before. And I was thinking of like you know this advanced tool I use, but no, they put a <laughs> no, graph. It's a graph, <laughs> of course, right? Okay, so uh, Michael writes in with a uh, free NAS and ZFS and SSD question, <clears throat> and he prefaces it with uh, a great introduction and also about a bug he bumped into. But he has a couple of core questions. I'll jump right to. Uh, he says, "How would I send snapshots to a free NAS machine?" He's got here. I'll give you the basic setup. He wants to know how to do this. Uh, he's got. A free NAS with ZFS, so uh, he has Anagros on a machine uh, with now using ZFS, and it's worked great. He's configured them. He's configured four SSDs and put them uh, in a striped configuration. And jeez, uh, he's got a link to benchmarks. He's got here, so he's got questions: how to how to send snapshots to his free NAS machine, uh, how how to restore if an update goes bad, like how to actually use these snapshots to recover. And then he's got a couple other questions after that. So how to send snapshots, because he's got ZFS on the workstation, ZFS on the free NAS, and then how to so recover. So he wants to send ZFS, a snapshot of his Integros machine to his free NAS? Correct. Uh, well, just follow the instructions. Like, <laughs> I'm not sure I understand the question. Um, <laughs> are you just, is your answer Google it? <laughs> no, my answer is buy my book. Oh, <laughs> there book you go. Com. But um, like... That's nice. It's it's uh, because ZFS is ZFS is ZFS. So right. you just follow the instructions you get anywhere, like the FreeBSD handbook. Uh, so yeah, on the Antigros machine, you would do ZFS send, and then the the snapshot you want to send, and then pipe that into like SSH or whatever to the FreeNAS, and then it would pipe it into ZFS so, receive running on the FreeNAS, and then here's his office. ultimate question. So say he does that. He figures out he uses ZFS send to send it to the FreeNAS rig. 
Um, he goes ahead, he installs one of his crazy rolling updates, and his whole machine borks up. What is his best method for rolling back? Can he do a ZFS receive and pull down those snapshots? Yeah, so and uh, you would probably start off of a live CD or something version of your choice, chosen OS uh, and then basically make a new pool on your working drives and then receive all the data again and then it will be back on your machine. Um, this is integrated into the TrueOS installer. So, you know, if you fire up the installer on your fixed after it was broken machine and just hit restore instead of install, point it at your FreeNAS and it sucks it down for you. Uh, so if, if you have... Uh, uh, TrueOS, which is the new version of PCBSD, uh, and a FreeNAS, they're integrated together and do all this for you without, with just nice clicky GUI buttons. Uh, but if it's Integros, you're going to have to use the command line to do it. But it's relatively simple. Yeah. And again, there's that book. Yes. ZFS, uh, ZFSbook.com has oh. both FreeBSD Mastery ZFS and Advanced ZFS, which covers replication. I bet those commands might be in that book. Yep. Hmm. Uh, with full examples and how to do it without needing root access on either machine. Oh, that is nice. So Chris writes... So he, had, in, he had a third follow-up question. Yeah, he does. As far as I understand it, if one of the S4 SSDs dies because he has them all striped together, the whole array goes away. Yes, that is true. Yeah. <laughs> he says, how would I be able to recover from this? Oh, uh, you wouldn't. You would have to, you know, install all the data again. Uh, yeah. So yeah, you could yeah. replace the dead drive and then make a whole new pool and restore it for it. Really, what you should do is not... Use Stripe, but you know, set up RAID Z1 across your four drives, and then if one of the four SSDs dies, you can just replace it, and you don't lose anything. You only get the space of three of your four SSDs, but you know, your speed's going to be pretty good. We're using three or four SSDs, right? Yeah, really. Striping is bad. Don't do that. Okay, so <laughs> okay, so now we go to Chris's email. Now he has a long question about content filtering with PFSense. And 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 yeah, not so making it look like it's behind a proxy. Yeah. So uh, he, yeah, he doesn't want to use a proxy to do the filtering. Because and he's kind of comparing he to the sonic wall functionality. Yeah. Where, yeah. So he he doesn't control the endpoints, the actual devices that everybody on the network's going to use. So he can't configure them all to use a proxy. So there's two options. There's a, the transparent proxy setup where the basically the firewall yeah. pushes the content through the proxy no matter what. So any connection going out to port 80, the firewall will basically divert it through the proxy. Uh, in, in most cases, that means the proxy is actually on the firewall machine. So you can do that. Uh, well, the, what he's talking about from SonicWall is basically filtering the websites you're going to go to by IP address. Uh, so he just wants to like, get a, this list of IP addresses of known bad websites and block them with the firewall. So uh, PF, the firewall that PFSense uses, has this as an ability. You basically have these tables, and it's how uh, most of the scripts that do things like block the people that are trying to brute force your SSH work. It basically... There's a text file with a list of IP addresses, and it gets loaded up into the firewall and reloaded automatically and blocks the stuff you want. Uh, so that's one way. Uh, he also talked a little bit about uh, doing it in DNS. Uh, you can do some of that. You know, you can block individual domains with that, and maybe that's helpful. Uh, or you know, use something like OpenDNS, but mm-hmm. uh, that's a little bit more work. Uh, you could use something like PFSense's built-in DNS server for your local LAN DNS mm-hmm. and then forward out to open DNS for queries that your local DNS doesn't have. Right, and, and then that blocks uh, – if you if you set the right settings for open DNS, it will block uh, known malware and so on. And, and I, I'm going to just also, mention I've done that for dozens of clients back in the day and it worked great, like really great. And if you decide you want to block Facebook, you could 
uh, add facebook.com or yep. whatever as a local domain yep. in yep. your local DNS server and point it at localhost or something. Yeah, and, and I, what, what I did there was exactly that. And then it would, it would just redirect to an internet page that stated the company's in, uh, internet policy. Yeah. Um, so the problem with blocking based on just IP address, uh, like you were talking about from the Sonic wall, uh, is that many websites often share the same IP address as other ones. Uh, you know, like if, uh, for example, Krebs was behind the Akamai or is now behind the Google Shield thing. Yeah, great example. Uh, so if you decide you want to block that website, you might block other websites that are also hosted on the same thing, and that wouldn't be good. Maybe that one's not uh, a good example because nobody wants to block Krebs' website. But, um, you know, like Cloudflare hosts a lot of sites, uh, including some bad ones, uh, but also some good ones. And if you just block all their IP addresses, then you're blocking both. Uh, I, and, you know, like, I don't know. Some of my IP addresses host over 100 sites. And if you wanted to block one of them, blocking them based on the IP address would be... Clunky. It'd be very clunky. Yeah. And then the problem with trying to do it with something like Facebook is that they have hundreds and hundreds of IP addresses and you're probably going to have trouble getting that right. Uh, so DNS can help there a little bit, but then, you know, uh, there are solutions around that where there are sites uh, with a different domain name and it basically proxies Facebook for you so that you can still load it. I know that. Yeah, uh, I mean, people used to use that at school all the time. Oh boy, that's a whack a mole game. Facebook and the DNS. That is a whack a mole game. That is, that's a yeah. That's not a winner. Yeah. So there's uh, the DNS based solution uh, works fairly well, but your other option is a what's called a transparent proxy, where you're using Squid, but you don't have to configure the clients to use it. You basically force all the outbound connections to port eighty and four four three through Squid, and then the client doesn't even necessarily know they're going through a proxy. Yeah. I think it's interesting. I think he kind of was in the mindset when I read that email that it's got to be one solution. And I think what you're saying and what I'm agreeing with is use everything. Use transparent proxy. Use DNS blocking and bring all of these things together to, to address this problem. And, and the problem with the WatchGuard solution you're using before is it's, it's a blunt force tool. And so what you are kind of seeing is a disadvantage to PFSense in your email because he's trying to convince management to switch to PFSense. Mm-hmm. Um, what you are seeing as a disadvantage is just – I don't mean to be blunt, but it's kind of just a misunderstanding on your part. These are actually advantages because you can use a multi-tool approach. Transparent proxy is going to work great for your organization to, for blocking. Right. No, no endpoint configuration required that No way. endpoint configuration. It's integrated right into the PFSense box. So it's not like you have to do something complicated because the uh, port 80 and 443 requests are already going that direction. You can build on top of that with content filtering. But just, just – the caching and acceleration and bandwidth your company will save from that. These are advantages you're going to gain. Then you integrate in local DNS blocking for things you know you don't want. Create a list internally. It makes you actually have to think about it as a company. What is it we don't want our, our, our employees doing? You build a list, and then you set up an internal DNS server using PFSense and have it forward to open DNS, which you've pre-configured to block things like spyware and malware and porn. And, and he had a couple other things in there. You can do all of that using forwarding DNS, and you're set. And you can use yeah. you, what you're seeing as a disadvantage. You bring all of these together as a suite of tools. So yeah, uh, you know, obviously, it sounds like they're using Dell's Sonic Wall right now, and they are trying to get a, a you know checkmark to checkmark comparison, and it's not quite the same. Yeah, and it's a little hard to know, part of right? It is because the you know what Dell's selling you of the oh you know here's a big blacklist of bad sites yeah. by IP address yeah. is that doesn't work very well. And uh, it's a it's a checkbox that you're checking, and 
it's not, it's a blunt tool that you don't really know what they're doing behind the scenes. And that's, that's illustrated in his email. He's not quite clear how Watchdog pulls it off. And right. that – I'm – I mean, I know that and is then, yes, nice. It solves course, a problem, other... but geez, I would be really uncomfortable not understanding how my endpoint device is actually working. Just think about it from that perspective as an oversight you'll have from a technical understanding of how your network is actually connecting from the user to the internet. When you're using that checkbox in the watchdog device, you don't actually know what it's doing. It's probably all fine, but you don't actually, you couldn't actually do a diagram in Visio of how it's actually working. And and that's not how you want to base your network. End yeah, of so the other uh, things he brought up were HTTPS uh, and you know how that's basically encrypted and so the, the your proxy can't do anything about what's... You can't look inside of it and tell if it's porn or not. Yeah, he wanted to know if there's a way to like break that open or something. Cause so, well, you can, you can force downgrading from HTTPS to HTTP in some cases, but any sites that have HSTS and so on will... Uh, throw up a big scary warning. Now, if your goal is just to block the site, then that works for it, other than the big scary warning you just get that they don't understand rather than the regular blocking message or whatever. Um, and he, uh, in particular, since he doesn't control the endpoints, he can't enforce a root certificate to, to do the you know transparent intercept thing where you decrypt all the SSL traffic, uh, run it through your proxy, and then uh, have encryption between the proxy and the actual website. Um, so I understand that's not an option, but you know, in general, you just have to decide what you want to block and uh, block it. Um, you know, while the Sonic Wall feature sounds more advanced, it really isn't. It's just a <laughs> list of IP addresses and it's blocking it. And you can do that in PFSense in at least three different ways. Uh, the simplest just being a single firewall rule that says block every IP address from this table. Uh, and then that table is just the downloaded list of IP addresses from whatever thing you've decided you want to block. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, like we talked about the other week, it probably doesn't make sense to block entire countries uh, or, you know, big blocks of IP addresses just because there's some porn in it. Uh, in the end, I don't know that you can actually solve the problem that easily. <laughs> All right. You know, if content filtering was easy, we wouldn't have <laughs> this whole industry based on, you know, look at the UK tried to mandate it and look how well that worked. Mm. All right, Tyler rounds out the email with a question about NFS versus Samba. Hey, Chris and Alan, quick question. And I don't recall if you've covered this before, but I'm wondering if you could tell me the quick pros and cons of using NFS versus Samba for network shares. I have a free NAS box as my main network file and media storage and several several other Linuxes, Macs, and Raspberry Pis, which all talk to the free NAS server. He's also uh, has some Windows devices, but I'll demand it. He'll talk about those later. I'm using Raspberry Pis with OSMC for streaming media from the FreeNAS via Kodi, and my Linux boxes and Macs stream a bit of media, but are mostly just sharing files, rsyncing, etc. I'm currently using Samba for network shares, but I'm wondering if there are any advantages to switching to NFS instead. Thanks for all the great work you do. Love all the shows on GB and TechSnap in particular. All the best. TD. Um. There's not all that much diff- like well the, the protocols are very different but in the end you either way you're sharing the files back and forth. Uh the authentication models are a little bit different but you know in your homeland you're usually using a simple one either way so it doesn't make that big of a difference. Um Samba has the advantage of also working with Windows which is uh you know kind of makes you lean towards it either way. Uh but you know both of them work, and both of them are not going to be speed limited on your internal gigabit LAN. Yeah. So there's I have really a, no particular reason to 
to worry about one versus the other. I have a lazy rule of thumb, and it goes like this: um, if it's a if it's a share, I'm going to access on demand. It should be Samba. If it's a share that I want to persistently have connected, and it's almost more like it's part of my file system, like it's another it's another storage device on my computer, then I go NFS. So for my Plex boxes and my SAB NZB systems, all those, you know, whatever, anything that's a persistent front end box is connected to a whole bunch of storage, or my Proxmox system, I absolutely go NFS, and I find NFS to be slightly faster. But that's you know, in this case, that's when I'm, I'm editing Etsy FS tab. I'm adding these amount points so they, they mount when the system boots up. They're like part of the file system. When it's something I connect to arbitrarily to transfer a file from time to time or access some documents, I use Samba. And I think that's where I draw the line. And Yeah. Uh, the Freenets can run both and you can literally you know use both from all your systems. Uh, NFS on Windows is really – really crazy but yeah uh, that would be the other thing if i'm going to use macs or windows i would probably probably lean towards samba and yeah so macs have nfs and everything although apparently in the current cr betas accessing nfs will crash it very quickly yeah and also Uh, it doesn't show up quite the same way it's like it's like it's on the file system but it's in part of the file system that's hidden to like the regular mac ui Whereas if you connect uh-huh. to Samba, it shows up as a volume in the Finder, in yeah. open and save dialog boxes. It's just more integrated into macOS. But again, if you want to use NFS because it's something that's going to be persistent, then you just build yeah. shortcuts There are that a couple of advantages to NFS if using fancy file system features, but in general with your FreeNAS, you're probably not. Uh, both of them support ACLs, so you can have advanced permissions, so there's really... And no particular told, pro or con to either one for your you use know, case. Funny enough, you could also mount a Samba share at, using FS tab like I do, and <laughs> and and one thing to keep in mind when it's when it's Samba talking to Samba, you get great performance. It's not like it's using some weird Windows only code that is goes slower and has a bunch of over- overhead. Samba's actually made. An amazing improvement so that the Samba server and the Samba client, once they realize they're talking to each other, you get great benefits there. So you're not you're not even really disadvantaged. I'm, I'm having no performance issues yeah. uh, running my entire computer over Samba from Windows here. Yeah, yeah. You know, so I, I copy wouldn't... files around at at max out the gigabit the whole yeah. time. I'll give you. Here's how I. Here's how yeah. Angela. I play house. games off Steam directly off the Samba share, and it works. You do, yeah, yeah. It's faster than if I had a, a regular spinning hard drive in my computer because the latency is lower because uh, it's ZFS is prefetching and I'm using six hard drives instead of one. Yeah. Basically. So at Angela's house right now, she has an Intel NUC that has um, a bunch of front end services on it and like a tiny SSD physically installed into it. And then over the NUC's built in Ethernet, you know, we have we have essentially all of the data in the world available to it because I just – I have her currently mounted with an NFS share of data and in the future we'll probably add another array and she'll do another NFS mount. It will be totally transparent to her. It will it'll be perfect and that's where NFS is really solid. But when she connects to that system from her desktop, she uses Samba because it's more on demand. So th- there you go, Tyler. I hope that I hope that's maybe a good line to draw and hope it answers your question. If you'd like to send us a question, go to jupiterbroadcasting.com, click the contact link and then choose TechSnap from the dropdown. And ask it, or you could email us directly. Text. I don't, which I don't think a single person did this week. Everybody pretty much used the contact form, but you actually can. TechSnap at jupiterbroadcasting.com, and we'll feature it in an upcoming episode, and of course, the subreddit as well. But now, with the feedback all done, it's time for the TechSnap Roundup.
Welcome to the Tech Snap Roundup. Yeah, that's what that crazy music means. Now, the roundup of stories that didn't fit at the top of the show, but we still want to go over and give you some links to follow up on your own. And some of these links came from our subreddit over at techsnap.reddit.com. Go check it out if you'd like to submit content to this show. And Alan, our first one actually didn't come in from the subreddit. It came in via email, and it's a follow-up to the accessibility abuse, you might want to say, from mm-hmm. Dropbox that we covered last week. Well, it looks like it's starting to change. Dropbox has acknowledged that this is a big problem. They say they're now working with Apple to make it better, and they plan not to abuse it at the present. <laughs> yes, and apparently uh, macOS Sierra will address this by not allowing programs to do that. Well, isn't that out? Yeah, it's out uh, publicly well, it's released in today. Beta. No, no, I think it's out. Oh, yeah, okay. yeah, it was released. Yes, I know the 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 previous two betas were crashing constantly if you tried to use NFS. Yeah, yeah, no, it is out. It is yes, and I think that might still be an issue because we got an email in about that still being a problem. So now this is a good one. Oh, you did see this? How to crash systemd in one tweet? Yes. Uh, so basically, if you run uh, systemd notify with a parameter of just quote quote, so basically empty but not uh, so an empty string rather than no parameter. Uh, and pointed at the uh, run systemd notify socket, uh, it can cause PID1 to hang or crash, and uh, to the point where the system feels generally unusable, trying to SSH or SU will hang for up to 30 seconds because systemd is now integrated in the login system. You have to wait for the attempt to contact systemd to time out after 30 seconds before it'll go ahead, and so on. And uh, it sounds pretty nasty. Now, it doesn't work on some systems, I guess? Well, um. His follow-up says that some people can only reproduce this if they do this command in a while true loop and do it like really, a whole bunch mm, of times really, okay. really fast. Wow, yeah, uh, yeah, sure. Because it seems, depending on the version, I think systemd restarts itself when it hangs or crashes uh, and is eventually becoming responsive again. But if you do it constantly, it will basically be dead. <laughs> uh, and apparently the bug was introduced over two years ago in uh, systemd209. Uh, hello, Lenard. Hello. Hello. This one struck a chord with me how the Seattle police, that's right, my local police, secretly and illegally purchased a tool for tracking your social media posts. Uh, So this is kind of interesting, including dollar amounts. The tracking software, which the SPD purchased in October of 2014 from a CIA-funded company called Geofedia, is designed to tell officers where you posted from and what you said. It can also show hundreds of other tweets, Instagrams, and other social media posts from anywhere else in the vicinity, and then file all of that information in one big old database. The secret purchase of Geofedia software for $14,125 violated a Seattle law requiring a city official outside the police department to be notified of such acquisitions. Oh, that's how they got caught. So an SPD spokesperson, uh, which was uh, said... Was talking to the stranger, admitted on September 23rd that the Geopedia purchase should have been cleared and should have been done in accordance with the Seattle code. He offered no excuse, but added that uh, we're going to stop using that. And three days later, they said they had stopped using the Geopedia. Mm. <laughs> That's kind of a creepy, you know, just watching that. I guess maybe yep. it might be useful well, for protests. Uh, you can tell Twitter not to record your location. I don't know if that actually stops them from doing it, but. That's a good point. I don't know either. Uh, All right. Our next link in the roundup is a video. What Mm -hmm. we got here? Oh, it's a Tesla video. Yep. So this is uh, Uh, remote hacking a Tesla. Yeah. 
Hello, everyone. Well, well, I fast forward a little bit. All right, I'll try I was going to do like a voiceover. I was all ready to yes. be like a Mike Rowe here. So they jump ahead. All right. Yes. So there's the hacker sitting in the back of a different car across the parking lot. Yep. And this guy's sitting in his Tesla. Yep. And then stuff is going to start happening. So the seats, the seats are moving right now. Nobody's in the yeah. car at this moment. Yes. Uh, so the seat starts moving, the sunroof opening, and so on. They're basically remotely controlling the car. It seems like, like specifically with the Tesla, anything would be possible. Even even adjusting the suspension remotely would be possible with a Tesla. Mm-hmm. And they changed the boot yep. logo on the uh, in in computer yep. car screen there. Now, if you forward to a little bit further, uh-huh. you see them driving down the parking lot in the car, and, and he tells the guy in the remote office, uh, not uh, a ways away. To uh, hit the brakes. <laughs> and he presses wow. uh, some computer buttons. And then that's, right that's, there he was... That's pretty creepy. Oh, and then here he can he's fold holding the up the wing mirrors while they're driving along. Yeah. I, see, the thing about the Tesla is all of this is computer controlled. There's not a single thing in the car that's yes. not computer controlled. why is it uh, <laughs> remotely accessible? Uh, I think... Uh, yeah, well... They ended up... Uh, they used the in-car computer to go to a website and infected it or something, I think. But either way, it really is a bad plan. Yeah. But yeah, there's... there's uh, it's worth watching the whole video. Uh, at one point, they're, you know, driving across the parking lot, and they say, okay, now, over the cell phone, and somebody at a place miles away presses the button of the computer and the car goes stop just like slams on the brakes and you can see them all going ah, trying not to uh, smack their face on the windshield kind of thing <laughs> alright so for those of you that had the end of September on the bingo card for when a Pokemon Go scam would actually take off uh, go ahead and uh, check it off because here you go a Pokemon Go guide infected thousands of phones yeah that's right recently and that's not a lot it's at least 6,000 phones which is a drop in the bucket uh, were infected by a Trojan disguised as a Pokemon Go guide. Now, this is why I decided to talk about it, because the number itself, that's not super remarkable, 6,000. But here's some cleverness that it does that I think will probably take off big long term. This, oh, by the way, is coming from a study by Kaspersky. But um, So here's the funny thing. The app, or I guess malware, doesn't start as soon as the victim launches the app. Instead... It waits for the user to install or uninstall another app and then uses that action to determine whether it's on a real Android device or in a virtual machine, obviously like a researcher's virtual machine. If the device is actually a phone, the malware will then wait for a period of time, a couple of hours, for example, before communicating with a server and then only proceeding to wreak havoc after getting remote instructions. Yep. Because uh, I remember a researcher from a university found that Apple's system only runs an app for like 40 seconds. So a couple of hours? That's that's yeah. So just uh, wait for other interactions that aren't going to happen in the isolated test environment. And yes. uh, then just sleep for a while and then do it and much harder chance, of, uh, much lower chance of getting caught. That That's pretty clever, waiting for another app to be installed and uninstalled. That is... Yep. Uh, hmm. All right, I'm ready for it. My body is ready, my mind is ready, and my building is not so ready for five gigabits over... Uh, well, st- actually, oh, maybe. That's what this is about. Holy so smokes. The new 802.3 BZ uh, allows your existing Cat5e 
Ethernet cables that are already inside your walls to support 2.5 gigahertz, yeah, baby. gigabits per second. All right. And your existing Cat 6 cables to do up to 5 gigabits per second. So my body and my building are ready. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, if you already have uh, got um, 5E yeah, so or if you already have Cat 5E in your building, uh, then your previous limit was 1, and you can now go up to 2.5 gigabits without having to change the cabling. That's great. Uh, you would still need new NICs and new switches, uh, but... The advantage of not having to rewire inside the walls uh, could make this a, a huge, huge advantage. Huge. Now, and then Cat 6, which Cat 6 can do 10 gigabits, but only over half the regular length. Uh, and you need a Cat 6A to be able to go the full 100 meters. Um, but with this, your Cat 6 cabling can do 5 gigabits per second, um, which, you know, uh, over the full length. So it's like, well, you could do 10 gigabit if you're if your cable run isn't that long but uh either way uh that's an interesting thing the only other time i'd seen 2.5 gigabits used was actually intel was using it for some uh like internal stuff where they had a uh a cluster type machine and had a whole bunch of smaller machines in it and they would all interface at 2.5 or 5 gigabits Mm. to the back plane and then actually out to your network you'd have like a 40 gigabit nick Oh, which is an existing standard. But uh, this is interesting in that it'll allow you to upgrade existing stuff in place. Uh, you know, I already have Cat 6A already wired in my house because I decided to do that when I bought the house. Uh, but for a lot of things, uh, yeah, it could be pretty cool. So uh, the register reminds us that metadata is a thing. So iMessage on your iOS device might be end-to-end encrypted, but that metadata, well, Apple's got it, and they do share it with law enforcement. So they got their hands on the sheet that Apple provides to law enforcement. This is a fascinating read, even if you're not an Apple user. It's a really good read. What it basically is is a sheet that they give out to law enforcement that explains something like the way you would explain it to – a clueless parent, as The Intercept actually puts it. There's questions that include, how does it work? Does iMessage use cellular data plans? And then there's the final section. What will I get if I serve Apple with a pen register or tap and trace court order for an iMessage account? And this is where we get what Apple does have on iMessages, which this is new information. They have, and, and I think something that people don't realize is they don't have the contents of your message but when you start a new text message on an iOS device and you type in an email address or a phone number of somebody that you want to text, in the background, the iMessage application connects to Apple servers, providing your IP address, the time you connected, and the number you just typed in the field to look up to see if they're on the existing iMessage network or if they need to be shunted over to SMS. And that query is logged by Apple. Simply putting the phone number in iMessage that you want to text, not the contents of the text message, but the query to see if they're in the iMessage system, that lookup, which happens automatically once you complete the field, that's logged and available to law enforcement. Now, Apple does specifically point out in their message to law enforcement that this doesn't mean you ever sent that person a message. It doesn't mean you ever received any messages. It just simply means you typed their contact information into the field. That's the only thing it proves. But it kind of does go against some of the things Apple previously said, where they claimed they didn't store any records that didn't include your location. However, it's clear in this, they are at least storing your IP address that you connect from, which in some cases could identify your location. Mm-hmm. Interesting write-up by The Intercept, and uh, 
much more in there and, and worth your time if you care about those kinds of things. Link in the roundup. So hey, it wouldn't be a wouldn't be a complete full fledged roundup like a Thanksgiving dinner of roundups without a little Krebs on security. Yep, <laughs> that's what we didn't cover. So I know, right? But he's uh, also well, during all this break, he's still doing his regular work. Uh, and he's got a story here about new money mules scam. So uh, this one's a, a lady from Canada uh, got an e- a job offer that paid her like $800 a week and uh, 5% commission. Uh, and she would get wired money and told to go into the branch of the bank, withdraw the cash, and then take it to a Bitcoin ATM and deposit it to a Bitcoin address she'd been sent as a QR code. Uh, and eventually figured out that this was suspicious. <laughs> And uh, got in touch with Krebs about it. But, uh, yeah, it seems that uh, the mules are uh, switching to Bitcoin rather than the regular way of doing it, probably because it it reduces the number of steps. Uh, Normally, basically, they'd have a mule at the country where they were getting the money, uh, sending it to a mule in their country, which eventually would get it to them. And by putting Bitcoin in there, they've uh, reduced their chance of getting caught because they don't have any contact with anyone locally. Um, Although Krebs also goes on to note that uh, you know the way they're often doing this is actually hacking companies' accounts on job sites like Monster.com, and then you know going through all the resumes that have been submitted to that company, and you know going after people who are desperately looking for work and are willing to take these, uh, you know, too good to be true sounding jobs where you're actually a money mule. Uh, and Krebs also points out that be careful uh, because you know. As as the mule, you're kind of like, well, you know, I'm I'm getting paid and and whatever. What's the downside for me? I can claim I was just a dope or whatever. It's like often <laughs> uh, banks uh, will expect you to pay them back yep. the money that uh, actually got clawed back. So be careful with that. Yeah, exactly. All right. So Al, I know you're a Firefox user, and I mm-hmm. uh, wanted to include this one for all the others out there as well. It, it looks like there could be an issue with Firefox where there's some pretty – hello, doggy. Hello. Hi there. Hello, puppy. There's some really aggressive rights by Firefox to SSDs, um, including like a 12-gigabyte write in one day. And a lot of it is the SQLite database for the recovery of, a, of your session if Firefox were to crash. Uh-huh. And so uh, there's some ways you can improve it and uh, tweak in your Firefox config to turn that down. But he was shocked, shocked when he looked into it. Yeah. Uh, depending on the SSD you have, that can that's significant wear to your SSD. That's like 0.1 drive writes per day if you're doing 12 gigabytes on 120 gigabyte SSD. And if you don't have, you know, an, an Intel data center class SSD that can handle like eight drive writes a day, that can, uh, you know, over the course of a couple of years, that can wear out your SSD. Yeah. So check it out if you're a Firefox user. We have a link in the roundup. This was specifically tested on Windows, but I would think it might apply to the Linux or Mac yep, versions uh, as well. It's mostly the same code everywhere. Exactly. Um, my session directory is actually on my Samba share. <laughs> so uh, let's see. Do you think then that in your case that that could be constantly saturated in your network connection? Not definitely not saturating. Right? I guess not saturating, but is... constantly writing to your over your network connection. I guess it's not. Sure, but yeah. I guess probably not. A, it's not enough overhead to actually even be noticeable. Probably. Yeah, my network connection is, you know, not doing anything. <laughs> okay, so to the, you have a link here to a comprehensive Super Mario Brothers disassembly. I love yeah. it already. So they've actually got the complete source code. Or, well, not the complete source code, but a complete source code to Super Mario Brothers for the NES. 
uh, with lots of comments. Uh, those are just defines, but if you get down a little bit further, they actually have actual comments. I don't want to make people's uh, motion sick, so I'm uh, I'm over here. I'm I'm smacking my space bar. You hear that as I scroll yep. down? There we go. The page down works better, but. <laughs> Yeah, that's true. Easy. It's uh, quite extensively commented, and uh, if you have some understanding of assembly and want to learn a bit more, uh, go ahead. Cool. Nice find, Alan. Very nice. Very nice. I just wanted to give a heads up to those uh, of you out there that are still running CentOS 5 boxes. You got six months as of today's episode of the TechSnap program. Literally, as of today, as we record this episode of TechSnap, there are f- six months left. CentOS 5, and then it hits end of life. So maybe start yep. planning your migration. <laughs> yeah. You know, they're, they're already on 7. You yeah. should probably get going. I, but you know what? I know we have people out there running CentOS 5. I know it. Uh, we got rid of our last 6 recently. Oh, really? Good for us. you. Good for you. All right. Well, we don't like 7 at all, but... What are you going to do? Let's, let's keep 6 alive forever and not have SystemD. That'd be great. Hashtag no, never SystemD. Hashtag never SystemD. Uh, most people never actually try to restore from backups. This is from uh, Gary Bernhard on Twitter. Here's a story of what happens when you actually verify your backups work. I select yeah, a snapshot in Time Machine. It shows an empty directory. I know the files will show up after about 30 seconds. You just kind of have to know this. I select a couple of folders and tell it to restore them to my test restore directory. Then I get an error message. The files can't be copied because there's a problem with the file. It doesn't say what file's causing the problem. It doesn't say what the problem is. And there's exactly four Google results for this message. And he goes on to say just like the, the shit train that he has to live through to restore files. Yeah, he found a GitHub thread where someone reboots and it faces a problem. So he tried that. He opens up the UI and now it loads his home directory but only shows four folders of the 40 it was showing before. Then he uh, chooses a different snapshot and then go back to the same snapshot and suddenly there's all the folders. Uh, try to restore the same two folders as before with the same restore target as before. Once again, you get the message, this file can't be copied because there's a problem with the file. I now assume that Time Machine has corrupted itself, but it apparently doesn't know this. The backups are just sitting there silently corrupted. I like this as this kind of send-off. In summary, you're going to have to try very very hard to avoid losing all of your data. Computers don't actually work. Happy Tuesday. <laughs> Nailed it. Exactly right. Yeah. Oh, man. Verify your backups, people. Jeez, that's the worst thing about them, too. Now, I got to feel bad for our friends over in Russia. Apparently, Russia has banned Pornhub, YouPorn, and tells citizens instead to just go out and meet someone in real life. Aren't they having like a population growth problem too? Maybe there's more to this than we well, realize. Uh, yeah, like they had a holiday recently where it was like have a baby day, basically. <laughs> it's like everybody gets the day off work because we really want you to have more babies. Go, I, you know what? Maybe it's a better time than ever to go to Russia. But yeah, so apparently they're uh, they're blocking about it. And uh, when they asked about it, they they were they, they were replied the official replied just go out and meet someone in real life. I guess that was like a regulator or something that said that. That's a hilarious response. If you'd like to submit something to our roundup, go over to techsnap.reddit.com. Don't forget we do this show live on Thursdays over at uh, jblive.tv. You can find the local time at jupiterbroadcasting.com/calendar. It's about uh, one. Well, it's not about. <laughs> we well, I guess I'll say this. We usually start about fifteen minutes early or so, but we start at one p.m. Roughly Pacific, yep. and which is uh, twenty hundred UTC. 
boom, there you go. It, we also would love to get your emails. You got the contact form where you can find the contact page and send it in. And last but not least, we do a tax snap episode at least so far for 286 weeks in a row without missing a single episode. And you can get them all automatically by subscribing to any of the RSS feeds you'd like, video or audio, whatever works best for you. And last but not least, if you're a patron, don't forget we do post whenever we can the live complete streams of TechSnap which include all of the between-segment shenanigans, pre-show stuff, me screwing up the intro, and all of that stuff, which uh, is available for our patrons at patreon.com slash today, at least until we come up with a new name. All right, thanks so much for tuning this week's episode of TechSnap, and we'll see you right back here next week. 